welcome to episode 80 of 80. Adult Music. That's right. Yeah. Big 8-0. 8-0. I hope to reach that age one day. I hope to still be doing this, too, at that age. <laughs> uh, let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. We're the podcast with music for the mature mind. On this side is your co-host, Russ. And on this side is your other co-host, Mike. Well, it's been uh, a little bit of a sad week. Last week, uh, or in the previous weeks, we've had uh, to play our necrology theme, and I guess we're going to have to do it again this week. Yeah, well, last week we had a week off, and then the week before that we had three jazz deaths, and this week we have a, we sadly have a classical death, so necrology theme, please. And there it, there is. it is. All right. Um, so we are sad and sorry to announce the death of the German pianist Lars Vogt, a uh, classical pianist. He died at the age of 51. Again, another uh, very mm. young uh, musician has left us too soon. And he died on uh, September 5th. Well, how old was Joey Di DeFrancesco? 51. It's like a magic age. Like yeah. the, It's the new 27, huh? Oh. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> Anyway, it's, uh, anyway, in all seriousness, I don't mean to uh, you know, you know, lighten the mood. Although I'm always uncomfortable talking about these things, I guess. Folk, at least, we we still don't know about Joey DeFrancesco's death or no. um, or Jamie Branch. We don't Jamie know how Branch, what happened, right. but we do know that uh, Lars Folk was um, fighting cancer for the last right. year and a half. He he was diagnosed with cancer in early 2021, um, and he finally um, passed away to it to the uh, sadness of the entire classical music world because he was well-liked and a great uh, musician and also a pianist that I really liked as well, especially when he partnered with uh, the violinist Christian Tetzlaff. I recommend that anybody listening listen to any duo recording with Christian Tetzlaff and Lars Vogt. Um, there's a Mozart one. There's a Brahms for the where they do the three violin sonatas. And it's a great Schumann one as well. And they did a few trios with um, Tetzlaff's um, sister, I think whose name I can't see coming back to me now. <laughs> oh, God, I can't remember. Tanya Tesla, maybe. But those, are those. when the two of them are together, it was just magic. There was something. Mm. You know, they just played off each other, and those are some recordings that I just love so much. So Mozart Violin Sonatas, Brahms Violin Sonatas, and Schumann Violin Sonatas by Christian Tesla and Lars Folkt. Yeah, it's it's sad to know that there won't be uh, any more of those um, recordings being made. They were real magic. Right. And he was great as a soloist as well. Listen to that. I, I actually preferred him with Tetzlaff, though. But right. anyway, there it is, our musical necrology for this week. Right. Uh, but there's another one we should mention, too. Everybody's aware that the uh, the Queen of England, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, died this week. And um, I wanted to mention her, too, because she was queen for a really long time. And England positively, or Great Britain, positively flourished musically. While she was queen. Now, I don't know that she had anything to do with that. She herself, I, I, we, there are photos of her playing the piano. I don't know how right. accomplished she was. But there's something about, she was um, queen for 70 years, almost 70 years, or maybe 70 years. She just provided some kind of stability, I think, mm -hmm. that kind of allowed this... Um, you know, musical culture to thrive and um and thrive it did. Boy, they yeah. Think about the British invasion of the sixties and you know, people like Elton John, all these all this pop music that continues to come out today. She's actually had quite a few songs uh written about her. Some of them <laughs> not, not so flattering. So nice. <laughs> but uh some of them were very um yeah. you know, respectful and things like that. 
but at least from this point of view, I think that's something we should mention. And now we have uh, King Charles III, and apparently he played the cello, so oh. here we are. <laughs> if, uh, ho- hopefully the uh, English, mu- the British music you know, scene will continue. The 20th century really was a great century for British music, especially the early 20th century and classical music. Right. And then um, once the war ended, jazz and um, you know popular music, rock and roll, you know, England produced some or some in Scotland too produced some of the best uh, rock bands. Yeah. In history, really. So uh, let's hope that continues under King Charles the Third. Let's hope so. They seem to have a really kind of vibrant jazz scene going in uh, the UK too now. So. Yeah, they do. Um, in the last uh, what twenty, thirty years, especially, yeah. but it's been going for some time, really. Yeah. Um, we just weren't hearing a lot about it in the U.S. Yeah. Now with uh, streaming and everything, we can hear, uh, right. you know, everything as it happens. So yeah. yeah, a lot of good stuff coming from there. We've done a lot of uh, British releases and jazz on the podcast too. So mm. let's hope the patronage of the arts continues. Yeah. Yes, please. We uh, yeah. we appreciate that. And. Uh, Oh, we should mention for anyone who listened to last week's episode that uh, your sort of uh, supposition of uh, the uh, <laughs> the overarching theme or progression of uh, one of the recordings was right. Yeah, how about that? It's just yeah, a wild guess. Well, I could hear it though because of yeah. the uh, the classical ear. You're generally li- listening to that line yeah. from the beginning of the piece to the end, and I tend to apply that to albums too to see if there's any kind of like sort of yeah. unity being sought and. I, I heard it on that album. Which which album was that? That was Cliff Corman's Brazilified. And, right. uh Well, we got a promotional version of that from Jim Ago at uh, Jazz Promotion Services, and uh, so he put us back in touch with Cliff, who uh, you know wrote to me a couple times with information about that. And uh, well, your idea was, you know, it starts kind of angsty, and then yeah. uh, it takes you through some little more relaxing waters, and then when you get to the and there's a reprise of the first track, uh, Except Guadalupe. Except it's less, it's yeah, less, it's less angsty. angsty. That so. was how I interpreted it. Yeah. But he kind of, he wrote to us and said that he wasn't going for that <laughs> angstiness. He was going for, no. he wanted some kind of freedom. What exactly did he say? Do you have the letter there? Um, he, he wrote I to us. Him, yeah. But uh, basically what... The the point was that he did have a uh, kind of he had a musical uh, reason for doing what he did because yeah. he comes from a you know a, yeah. a time when you recorded thinking of what the album was saying, right? You know, not this track generation that comes after us. Where right. well, you posted that comic right, you know, the kid right. saying back in those days you had to buy the whole album, even the tracks you didn't like. You know, right? So, I posted but, this on my. Uh, I should have posted that on uh, the Adult Music Facebook as well, yeah. but I just put it on my personal facebook page but uh you know we wanted to hear all the tracks and in the right order because that was important so yeah because they, they it was almost like it was either a snapshot of where the artist was at that time or it had like a you know like yeah. a like dark side of the moon it had like a whole sure. sort of process to it a whole narrative yeah, and even you if know. it doesn't you know tell you a story it at right. least takes you on a little journey that was well mm-hmm. thought out so we should fight to keep that uh in the streaming age you know that's why we do this podcast yeah, although we exactly. don't talk about popular music so but yeah. uh yeah we could do some if we see like an album like that maybe we could yeah. talk about it we'll see there are still some i think uh this evening we're going to be uh locked in the chamber a little bit yeah. for chamber music but before we get to that and this week's musical selections i want to remind everyone that in our episode description you can find links for spotify and apple music 
for all the recordings we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer. Uh, you can also follow us there for the podcast. Just look for us, Adult Music Podcast username. And now, if you don't see the full description or the links on whatever app or platform you happen to be listening to us on, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations for music and music commentary. That helps us get new listeners, so that always makes us happy. You can also follow us on our Facebook page to get extra information, a little humor, new releases throughout the week. I put up a bunch this week because uh, this week was a big jazz release week. And you can also leave a message or comment there on the Facebook or if you'd like to contact us directly, any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. So should we just uh, get get out the old, uh, the big old key and open the chamber door and go in there and see what's playing? Yeah. Let's go down and see what's going on in the chamber. All right. Our first, <laughs> the first chamber, <laughs> I feel like this is like a, a Mask of the Red Death type scenario that we're setting up here Edgar Allan Poe oh, read it if you don't remember it everybody it's been a long time it's actually about a plague so perfect mm. reading for mm. uh, Just our modern need. times yeah. <laughs> yeah everybody dies in it too so it's <laughs> I don't know how appropriate it is but it's uh... anyway the first, here, here we are in our first chamber we have the Italian composer Carlo Monza Hey, who, who everybody knows, of course. No, you don't. I, this, I, I hadn't heard of him before this uh, recording came out. Actually, this is um, he lived from 1735 to 1801. Now that's uh, Mozart and Haydn's era, and a little bit of Beethoven's. But Monza's gonna be he. He wasn't Haydn. He's from the Gallant era. Okay, which um, yeah, C.P. Bach is in a little bit, but mm. some of the Bach sons like Johann Christian were were more Gallant and. Um, this album is called Opera in Musica String Quartets, and it's a it's an album of six string quartets. The artists are Europa Galante, who I love, and uh, Fabio Biondi is the director. But he's taken it. Well, he he's playing the first violin, Fabio Biondi, and the uh, the rest of the quartet is just taken from musicians from Europa Galante. Galante. They are Andrea Rognoni on violin, the second violin, uh, Stefano Marcocchi on viola mm. and Alessandro Andriani on cello I, you don't even have to listen to this album I can just listen to their names <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just very musical they sound great and this is on the French uh, naive label alright so who is this guy Carlo Monza first of all I looked him up on Wikipedia and there's more than one of them and they're both composers huh. this is the one that was born in 1735 died in 1801 he was based in Milan and all six of these quartets are program music. So this is kind of a, you know, you, there's a little bit extra interest in this. Yeah, than they're just interesting. The, they're quirky. Yeah, just, yeah, there's a there's a kind of quirkiness to them, but not a, well, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, the quirkiness is all on the surface, as is always the case in Gallant music. And Biondi himself, in his booklet note, mentions that. Um, so these are all program music, and this was in vogue in the 18th century. The style is gallant, as I said, usually thought of as decorative and devoid of musical depth. 
It's all about style over. That sounds nasty, but that was the style. That's what they wanted. You know, that was uh, they weren't going for depth, so you can't really judge it on. Oh, no musical depth. I mean, this is the purpose. You want to listen to the surface, the style, the uh, all the musical curly cues that are going on mm -hmm. there. Um, it's all about style over content. But I'd say there's emotion in this work, or at least kind of theatrical emotion, sort of. You know, they're kind of telling mm -hmm. a story. Anyway, as Biondi says in an interview printed in the booklet, uh, Monza's music is characteristic of the late 18th century with delightful themes, varied moods, and a gallant tone. We should not look for a depth that isn't there. We risk betraying. It says it, and I'm guessing it means the music. Uh, Europa Galante is generally a large Baroque ensemble. Here they're just a string quartet. Um, Biondi, by the way, claims he's not completely in the lead on this album because he said that once this quartet was put together... They became a little bit more of a democracy than a, mm -hmm. orchestras tend to be dictatorships. <laughs> you know, they try <laughs> not to make them that so much, but with such a large group of people, you really tend to, you know, the, the conductor winds up making most of the, the decisions. He may have, he may discuss it with the musicians, but so these are, um, yeah, they're they're very theatrical. These works, even though they're just string quartets. Anyway, the first quartet, it's a, it's in five movements, in C major. The Amanti Rivali. And we have a really intriguing title there right away. The Rival Lovers. Of course, Italians are going to pick this as a... Yeah, I mean, how many scenarios run through your brain when you hear that title? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some from your own life. The first movement, they all have they all have these um, sort of uh, descriptive titles. Not not all the quartets, but a lot of, some of them do. And this one, the first movement is called The Amanti Rivali in Contrasto, which means the, the Rival Lovers... In contrast, or exposed, you know, so they're, you know, we get to hear who they are. And we get a lilting opening theme, and this is the first track. As is always the case with Europa Galante, because I've heard many, many of their recordings as a bigger ensemble, they produce a rough-hewn tone, so it's not silky smooth. They like that roughness, and that's what really drew me to them in the first place. There was something kind of... You know, electric guitar -y or that kind of energy that you get from, like, punk rock or something like that in their approach. Mm. Obviously, they're not amplified, so you're not going to get that kind of sound. <laughs> but I really, um, one of the nice things about that is you don't get a blend as much. You can hear all four instruments individually. Right. They all have different kind of timbral qualities to their to them, so you can kind of pick them out of the... Uh, out of the uh, harmony a little more easily than you can with, like, say, a quartet that's playing on steel strings. Mm. I think this makes the music sound more exciting. I like this approach. I think they're playing on gut, but I'm not sure because I'm not in touch with people like this anymore. <laughs> I used to know all these things. Okay, okay. so it's much lighter than rock music, as I said. Another characteristic I associate with this group is recklessness. Um, I've heard recordings, especially of Vivaldi by this group, where they just take this breakneck speed and really race and... You don't always get great intonation, but you get really exciting playing. Mm. And I really appreciated that because it it brought out um, qualities in the music that I wasn't used to hearing. So you think of Vivaldi as, you know, decorum, but uh, not in a Europa Galante recording. <laughs> it was, they had something else. They had a bit of excitement. Sparks. Okay. But um, I should say, we don't hear that quality here. This is not a reckless recording. It's actually fairly careful. In fact, I would say here they err on the cautious side, though they play with great melodic beauty. I think it's probably because, um, as we have said with Renitsky and uh, lately, who, who else, or somebody else with this, that there's no sort of um, 
tradition of performing this music. Right. There's a tradition of performing gallant music, but um, you, you, this music just doesn't get an outing. So I think they want to make sure they put it across, and they kind of err on the side of caution. This movement comes across as on the slow side of Allegro. It's labeled Allegro once the main section comes in. Uh, changes of texture, such as octaves, are made a big deal of. So whenever the, like the harmony changes, they, they really make sure you hear it. There'll be a pause or some kind of a um, sudden um, dynamic change. Or something like that. The drama is carefully articulated. The form is pretty straightforward. Both rivals, actually, to me, seem rather similar in character, but uh, their melodies are different, so you can mm. kind of tell them apart. I don't know. One of them's wearing like a different jacket than the other one, but they're. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think the whoever they're uh, the woman they're courting is is gonna sees much difference between them, and that's probably why she can't uh, decide. Anyway, movement two. Sisfidano. They challenge each other. This is a. Uh, a really interesting one, uh, recitative. It's like an opera. If you heard um, any of Mozart's operas, the recitative is when the character speaks before he sings his aria. And this has that quality where you'll have the person speaking, there'll be, a, say, a harpsichord um, setting the harmony beneath him. This is only 18 seconds long. In this movement, I, apparently, they challenge each other. That's what it is. It's just It's just like a talking violin, let's say. Uh, there are no words. It's just the violin using the opera recitative type melody and there's a cadence at the end so when the cadence is finished it's gonna happen okay uh movement three il duello that's the duel i wonder what in what uh I, i'm guessing swords here but you never know with a <laughs> with a um you know this kind of uh a duel or you know what is what uh weapons they're going to choose anyway this this movement is only 31 seconds this is all going by really fast sort of yeah. like in a the spoken part of an opera uh it articulates the duel it's all very tuneful with a lot of bouncing the bow off the strings mm. um there's a pizzicato at the end which i think indicates the fatal stab that's why <laughs> i think these are um swords because i i think that pizzicato indicates the piercing of flesh the fourth movement is dedicated to the Lamante favorito muore. So the favored lover dies. Doesn't he always? It's always the <laughs> it's always the goon that lives and he <laughs> winds up with the girl. The favored lover would die. This is a muted movement with weeping, sighing gestures. Mmm. Mmm. That kind of thing. Mm. In the lead violin. The fifth movement, La Disperazione delle Donne Amanti. This is like a general overview. The desperations of women who are loved. <laughs> the desperate. I think that's what it means. That's what I'm, I hope I'm interpreting that right. This actually sounds rather cheerful for desperation, actually. I guess the quickness of the theme is a kind of hand-wringing uh, hmm. Desperation. I'm getting hand wringing out of this if if that's the title. Anyway, the piece itself ends satisfyingly on an energetic movement. So I guess um, the woman's a little upset that one of her lovers died, you know, and I don't know. I wonder if she's going to go with the other one. She might dismiss him now because he, he killed the <laughs> other one. You never know. We don't find out. The next quartet in D major, Opera in Musica. It's just a general uh, description. It's an opera, like a sung dramatic work. With only music, no words. These all have, um, with the exception of the second movement, these all have um, just tempo markings, really. The first one is Adagio to Allegro, so that's going to be an introduction and a main section. It starts with a unison statement. Whenever you hear that, especially if you hear in all octaves, that's dramatic. That's really big because the uh, composer is um, saying something 
absolutely clearly there's no clouding or no harmonic kind of questioning or anything in that so that's always a, a big thing to do um, so make sure you're when you hear that make sure you keep that in mind uh, then it gets to the allegro which has a leaping theme at it's kind of cheerful i guess at 52 seconds we hear the contrasting second theme still upbeat and cheerful at 2 minutes 11 seconds we reach a cadence and then go into a quick development and by the 3 minutes and 11 second mark we're into a cadence approaching coda well played good rough sound the ensemble's a bit careful with this piece too it's okay the second movement is labeled recitativo which is a recitative it's going to be like a spoken part of an opera i wrote this is interesting um the violin plays its melody like it's speaking in an opera before singing a big aria and then i guess the third movement would be the aria but it's a rondo um it's amiable sounding sweet endearing immediately appealing the contrasting theme is sweet as well with a winding melody that instantly appeals the rondo theme comes back and the second time is the last time we'll hear it. It's very short. Usually you'll, the rondo, you'll hear it at least three times, the theme, but uh, with two departures. But here, there's only one. It's really just a ternary form movement. Fourth movement, allegro, is quicker, very brief at a minute and 12 seconds. There is, as is characteristic of Monza, a rhetorical pause before the final theme regains its motion for its final cadence. And the fifth movement starts with another, recitativo. Then we get an adagio, to an allegro, I'm guessing the adagio is the recitativo, and then the allegro would be the main section. So we get uh, chords by the rest of the ensemble to add a sense of drama while the uh, violin is speaking, in quotation marks. It cadences at 34 seconds. We get the final allegro in which all is cheerful. We get some speed here, just as the cadence ending at the first section and at the two-minute mark. The contrasting section follows with more harmonic variation, yet still relatively high speed. At two minutes and 33 seconds, we're back to the main theme. The piece ends with a brief coda and a rush to the last cadence. Good energy, by the way, in this bit. I don't feel like they're being too careful here, but they're never reckless at all on this mm. recording. I would have liked to have heard some recklessness, actually, but um, <laughs> we don't get it on this recording. Anyway. Tracks 11 to 13. This is the uh, the third work. Uh, quartet in F major. La Fucina di Vulcano. Now, Vulcano is Vulcan. He's a um, mythological character. And Fucina is a forge. He's a, I guess he's, a, he's an iron monger. He was the god of fire in Roman mythology. And in Greek, his name was uh, Hephaestus. So we know about him, mm. probably. Anyway... I guess the story here in this piece is that Vulcano is uh, jealous of uh, Venus, the goddess of love. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's the first movement. Vulcano nella fucina, geloso di venere, allegro. There's a mechanical element to the rhythm in this piece, drawing a musical picture of hammering on a forge. Okay, so that's the mechanical element. He's hammering, he's working. And at 32 seconds, a contrasting weepy tone is introduced, quickly dissipated by something lightly angry. So I guess we're getting his emotions about Venus. He's sad, then he's angry, you know, because uh, he's not getting his way. And then quickly back to the opening workmanlike rhythm. Uh, Vulcan laments again in a minute and 32 seconds and quickly comes out of it by going back to work again. I like the effect here of the bow catching the strings and giving a slightly percussive effect as the piece goes towards its climax. I think this is the ensemble doing this. I don't think that's written in the score that way. I think that's their interpretation. They're very creative. The Europa Galante and Fabio Biondi. 
The uh, second movement, Scende Venere e lo Placa. So Venus comes down from like wherever she's hanging out. It would be Mount Olympus in Greece, but she's Roman here. I don't know where they hung out. But she uh, placates him. Andante Grazioso. I don't know exactly how she does that. <laughs> but a nice chance is taken here by the ensemble playing the opening absolutely without rubato, which sneaks in on the repeat of that material. There's a lightness and elegance to this movement, drawing a picture of Venus. And I think that's all it is. It doesn't sound like they're uh, getting it on or anything. I think she's just kind of saying, they're there to him. <laughs> okay. That's what it sounds like anyway. The third movement, yeah, you're not going to get anything non- that lacking in decorum in the Galant era, please. <laughs> anyway, the third movement is called Lo Trasporta Seco all'Olimpo. So she's still at Mount Olympus. Okay. I guess the Roman gods all lived on Mount Olympus too. They're, they're the same, but I mean. Yeah. Um, so she takes him to uh, Olympus. This is a pretty straightforward Allegro movement. Again, catchy themes. At 38 seconds, there's a slower contrasting theme. We go through some episodes, get back to the main theme, and head to a satisfying final cadence. It's got a happy ending. Vulcan is happy. The program is rather light in this work. I guess we'll have to wait uh, for the romantic era, 200 years later, to uh, see what happens <laughs> next between Vulcan and Venus. <laughs> the fourth quartet on this album, tracks 14 through 17. Um, B-flat major, Il Giocatore, gio which uh, in this case is translates as the gambler. A giocatore could be any anybody playing a game or a sport. The uh, first, so this is about a gambler. The first movement, Adagio, has a calm opening, 26-second track. It's all parallel harmonies. And the second movement, Allegro, suddenly we go into the, we find ourselves in this faster movement. A cheerful, almost celebratory theme. This would be the gambler gambling. He's happy. He's in his element. Uh, Europa Galante do this emotion well. A good interplay between the voices in call and response segments. And the music, of course, is straightforward as we would expect it to be from a Galante or composer. The third movement, La Tristezza per la Perdita. So he's lost, <laughs> as gamblers often do. And he's sad. Tristezza. The sadness of the for losing. A real, it's a real lament here for having lost at gambling. The two upper voices play parallel harmony while the cello weaves an anchoring line. There's a little bit of a smile given to this by the ensemble in the repeat of the first section, perhaps of sympathy. But the light, they're kind of distancing some from them and kind of like, you know, mm. sort of uh, feeling a little bit of uh, affection and compassion for him, it sounds like to me. But the light, dissonant lower tones in the next section communicate real suffering they're accented by the ensemble and the fourth movement il giocatore raveduto he's repentant he's not gonna gamble anymore <laughs> right <laughs> anyway that's what it's called uh labeled affettuoso or affectionate this movement is at mid-tempo and has a light sort of dancey quality to it communicating the gambler free of his mental burdens it feels carefree again nice shaping of the lines and a good tempo by the ensemble here. I like the brief harmonic in the violin. I think it's the violin before the last section repeats. A little surprise in this very straightforward movement. And peace ends happily until the next time, of course. The fifth of the six quartets here, uh, tracks 18 through 21, is in G minor. It's called Divertimento Notturno, just a nighttime divertissement or just diversion piece. So it's kind of light music for... This is the kind of music they would play when everybody's like out eating or mm. doing something. It's kind of background music. 
basically. There's a lot of that that we hear in concert halls today. It's kind of funny. People just wouldn't have paid attention to it when it was first performed, and yet uh, here we are buying CDs of it now. <laughs> here I am, anyway. I'm one of the 0.01% of the world's population who does that. The uh, first movement, Adagio, is a 56-second movement, and it acts as an introduction. It starts with dramatic chords, followed by like ticking figures that mark time, and then we go into a minuetto a trio, you couldn't really get more uh, predictable than this. A minuet is, by this point, it's expected, let's say. It's not old yet, but it's odd to go right into a minuet. Um, but this is marked divertimento, and so it could be anything. It's played at a slowish pace that allows the players to spend time on the gently curving lines. The themes are all amiable. The trio section is a bit more histrionic than the gentle opening, which is kind of unusual, I think, with high notes coming down to short phrases followed by pauses. The third movement, Adagio, a solo rising figure, leads into a lilting theme with the cello marking time, followed by a cadence. All sections are very short and easy on the ear, and the brain as well. At 1 minute and 48 seconds, there's a new section that contrasts with the theme, but not with the overall mood. At 2 minutes and 18 seconds, we're back to the opening material, and at 4 minutes and 3 seconds, we get a light coda heading to the final cadence. Fourth movement, Allegro Non Tanto, is a bouncing light theme, uh, first stated quietly in a mid-range frequency, then high up with the violins in the lead. There are some charming details, like the pizzicati at the cadence, just after a minute and 30 seconds, all taken with the light wit it requires by this alert ensemble. A sudden speeding up to the final cadence also perks up the ears. Yeah, you want to hear music like this played by a high-quality ensemble, and I'm really glad they took this on. Mm. Anyway, the last quartet that we hear, tracks 22 through 25, is an E-flat major. It's called La Caccia, The Hunt. People really liked The Hunt in those days, <laughs> at least uh, the, the aristocratic class did. Uh, the first movement, Allegro Non Tanto, uh, has a dramatic chord followed by a sequenced phrase, which means it's like this short phrase that just keeps being played again and again and starting on a different note. Um, it pauses on an open cadence and then adds some more rhythmic activity in the accompaniment as the violins pick up energy towards the section's cadence. Plenty of use of open cadences to tease the ear in this movement. Now, the open cadence is a way to build tension, and uh, it's something that people like uh, Beethoven especially would use like to extremely dramatic effect. But uh, when you hear it, this the, the mind is getting engaged because you're wondering mm. when the... The musical sentence is going to end, as it were. Okay, so he's uh, he's teasing us a little intellectually here too, but only in a very light way. The second movement, temporale, has a, <laughs> temporale means like a, a big storm, a sudden change of character as more stormy, aggressive harmony and rhythm start up without warning. This is rather a tone painting of a storm. It's light in comparison to the one by Beethoven in his Sixth Symphony, but it, evo it evokes the image of a storm while simultaneously sounding cute. Um, in other words, it's entertaining for the audiences or musicians of that day. Uh, Beethoven's would have come, it was in 1808 or so, so this it's um, got to be 20 or 30 years later, and music had changed a lot. Beethoven's storm is ferocious, and in a yeah. future episode, we're going to get to hear a particularly ferocious interpretation of it <laughs> uh, coming in a few weeks. That's just a little tease. I'm not going to tell you which recording it is yet. Anyway, the third movement, Unione de Cacciatori. Um, by the way, 
any of you out there, any of you Americans who have eaten chicken cacciatore and are wondering what that means, a cacciatore is a hunter. So it's the what it means is chicken with a sauce that a hunter would make. So it's stuff that he has available. It would be like it would have meat in it and it would have probably stuff you'd find in a mountain like mushrooms yeah. and things like that. So anyway, a cacciatore is a hunter and this uh, movement is called Unione de Cacciatori. So the uh, hunters have gotten together after the storm to see if everybody's okay. They come out of hiding, reunite, and this is a brief at 35 seconds. Sounds lightly triumphant. They've all survived. <laughs> or haven't gotten hurt or anything. Um, the fourth movement, Rondo de Pastori Fratanto che Cacciatori Cenano. Cenare means to eat dinner or to dine. Um, so the uh, the shepherds kind of they're there in the mountains too, and uh, they they assemble with the hunters and they all eat together and everybody has a good time. So the hunters party with the shepherds after the storm. The rondo theme is an appealing rustic dance, as we would expect from you know, if we're evoking shepherds, uh, filled with plenty of droning bass representing musettes. A musette is a French version of the Scottish bagpipe. It's a lot lighter sounding, mm. but it has like a droning bass like the Scottish bagpipe does. Uh, contrasting theme just after one minute is simply in lower profile to the highly memorable rondo theme, but still dancing and winding. We hear the rondo theme again, then another contrasting theme, still dancing, then the rondo again. Uh, the rustic quality is maintained by the lower end of the ensemble throughout. Uh, lovely light pizzicati end the work, very charming. Okay, so Monza's music is pretty light and very much in the Gallant style, so there's no philosophy lesson here. <laughs> Those of you who don't want a <laughs> philosophy lesson might want to uh, really uh, give this a listen. It's highly appealing and it's well performed. Um, the music is all surface, but it's got a superficial beauty that shouldn't be dismissed for lacking depth. It's not about that, as Biondi says in his booklet. I enjoyed the music. The shaping of themes and touch of the players is a hallmark of this ensemble. I feel these, these works could have used slightly more fire. Um, they err on the side of caution, but again, you can't really blame the ensemble. It's music that the world hasn't heard, and I think they really wanted to make sure they put it across in all its detail. Um, but they don't err on the side of caution so much they make the performances unenjoyable. They're very good. They're pleasant where they could have been exciting. Let's just say that. And there's no problem with that. Uh, it's an interpretative choice. All rhythmic, and you really don't have any other choice because this is the only recording of this music <laughs> there is. So there you go. All rhythmic profiles are strongly etched, and we catch the dance quality of many of these movements. Uh, these are appealing, charming works and performances, and if you're looking for something light to listen to um, that you've never heard before, here's something brand new, except that it's very old. <laughs> I enjoyed these. I find Gallant music has uh, some quirkiness to it. It's yeah. similar to Baroque music, but it has a little a little bit more kind of, you know, unexpected things, a uh, license yeah. taken with it. And so I, I like that in general. Here, the shortness of the movements and the many contrasts grab your attention. Like, well, right. <laughs> that's over already? And and then we're doing something <laughs> completely different. Uh, matching this sort of, really surprisingly short. Yeah, these program uh, ideas. So that's fun. One thing I picked up on is the use of cello in a rather kind of percussive way in these compositions, which is kind of interesting. And then the contrast between the movements. Uh, I thought the performances, as you say, they're 
they may be a bit cautious, but they're enthusiastic enough and they bring the energy in the compositions across well. So I found it uh, kind of interesting and entertaining to listen to. Okay. Next, the classical music recording of the week. I think we we agree with this, right? Yeah, this is a nice discovery. This is amazing. Yeah. 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 Is um, music by Ferdinand Ries, uh, piano trio and sextets uh, performed by the Nash Ensemble. And this is on the Hyperion label. That means you, listener, have to buy it. Or <laughs> yeah. you could sample it on the Hyperion's website because they don't put their music on streaming services, as right. we've mentioned many, many times before. And as we will be mentioning in October and November, too, because I know they have some great recordings <laughs> coming out this autumn. This is one of my favorite music labels, and it's a shame that I can't share this with people. But on their website, you can get 30-second sampling of these. It's not enough, though. Hmm. Um, another thing, I mentioned the Nash Ensemble. I'm going to mention all the musicians as they come up. But I really want to also mention recording engineer Oscar Torres, recording producer Andrew Keener, because this is a fantastic sounding recording. Yeah. Really comes up beautifully. And uh, the, the music itself is played in an exciting kind of fairly aggressive fashion too, but not not too much. You know, it's just, it's perfect really. So good. Anyway, who is Ferdinand Ries? He was a student assistant and a de facto agent of Beethoven. So he's associated with Beethoven. Um, we actually owe the Ninth Symphony to him as he secured the commission for it on behalf of the Philharmonic Society of London hmm. in 1822. So no Ries, there probably would have been no Ninth Symphony written by Beethoven. How about that? Oh. Well, maybe somebody else would have picked it up, though. <laughs> Anyway, um, Rees was in London from 1813 to 1824, and all of the works on this recording were probably composed in that period. Okay, let's go through this. There's quite a lot of uh, interesting timbres or you know yeah. instrumental quality on this album too. The first work, tracks one through three, is a grand sextet in C major, Opus 100. Okay, so the Nash Ensemble musicians on this are um, Simon Crawford Phillips on the piano, Stephanie Gonley, violin, Jonathan Stone, the other violin, <laughs> uh, Lawrence Power, viola, Adrian Brendel on cello. That name might sound familiar because he is um, Alfred Brendel, the great uh, pianist's son. He plays the hmm. cello. And Graham Mitchell, double bass. Let me say that again. Double bass. <laughs> That's usually usually don't hear a, a double no. bass in a sextet. <laughs> well, that I mean, this yeah. is just such a rich sound. You know, you're used to yeah. hearing, you know, piano trios or a quartet, and then this is just the next level of fullness of sound that really grabbed me. Yeah. Now I should say in this, as far as a comp the composition goes, the piano writing is highly virtuosic, and uh, oh, yeah. at the first um at the first performance. Rees would have been playing the uh, the piano, hmm. so he's he's taking the spotlight for himself. Hey, I wrote this piece. I'm going to be the star. <laughs> yeah, it's a long <laughs> but, movement. Yeah, and the other instruments maintain a supporting function throughout, although they make some pretty great sounds. Hmm. Uh, this really comes across as a concerto for piano <laughs> you know, hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay, the first movement, very long, as you said. Allegro con brio, is it like 17 minutes or something? Now... That's not long for an orchestra, but a chamber work? That's that's playing mm. for a long time. Not only that, I don't think the piano really ever stops playing 
for the entire <laughs> 27 minutes of this piece. <laughs> He's constantly yeah. playing. Um, the exposition in this, um, okay, this is a sonata form. A sonata has three sections. It has an exposition, and then it has a development where the themes we heard are kind of like cut down and played in different keys and reassembled until they all wind up in the same key in the recapitulation, which we hear the the same themes in the exposition, but one of them is now in a different key. And that's what a sonata is. And so this one's unusually turbulent, though. Um, so my first comment here is I wrote, let's play Find the Cadence. There's lots <laughs> yeah. of harmonic trickery in this movement. Please remember, for those of our listeners who are not, like, didn't learn all the terms in classical music, a cadence, or even our jazz listeners who might not know, I don't know. But a cadence um, is sort of the end of a musical sentence. It kind of goes back to the tonic, the uh, the main chord, the, the, where the rest, the chord of rest, let's say. It's like a period at the end of a sentence in in a, in a, you know in a book or something like that. But uh, Rees uses a lot of harmonic trick trickery. There's a big bold intro, uh, full on orchestration, and the bass provides some deep bottom end. Hmm. It's a spacious sounding recording, as I mentioned. Uh, good work to the engineer and producer. The piano is off to the races almost immediately, controlling most of the harmony, while <laughs> with the rest of the ensemble tagging along. It kind of sounds like there's this enthusiastic guy, kind of, you know, the piano's like this enthusiastic <laughs> guy, like, kind of running through the mountains, and the other people are just trying to keep up. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Except that, you know, th there's no issue with uh, them keeping up. These are all fantastic musicians. Um... I love the doubling of the bass and the piano's bass notes. It gets this big, fat kind of bass sound. Uh, those That sound richly explodes out of the speakers. So if you have a nice uh, stereo, it's going to be a real um, audio pleasure for you. At a minute and 50 seconds, we get the more tender second theme uh, with the piano virtuosically decorating the highly melodic line. At 3 minutes and 32 seconds, we reach a cadence, the material is extended with virtuoso piano figuration. And we reach at 3 minutes 50 seconds. We think we're heading for another cadence, but we're in for a harmonic shock. We get a false <laughs> cadence there. And again, at about 4 minutes and 15 seconds, when we think we're finally heading to that same cadence, as the material is extended to 4 minutes and 39 seconds, when we hear another false cadence. When is this <laughs> going to end? The cadence never comes, in fact. But we are nevertheless launched into what sounds like a repeat of the opening material, at 4 minutes and 45 seconds. So it doesn't actually end and then go back to the beginning. We just kind of like, the beginning mm. just sort of starts up again. Instead, this starts going in unpredictable tonal directions, indicating it's the development selection of the sonata. So actually the opening material doesn't repeat. It sounds like it's repeating, but then other things happen, and we realize, ah, we're in the development section. Really tricky, Mr. Rees. <laughs> They must have delighted the audience, or they must have gotten confused and saying, oh my, what's happening here? <laughs> anyway, at 8 minutes and 15 seconds, we reach a solid cadence in the strings, but the piano prolongs the final resolution with virtuoso material and a trick harmonic note at <laughs> 8 minutes and 39 seconds. Write that time down. Listen for that. It's really yeah. fun. The piano is the trickster in the ensemble, so not only is he leading everybody on this uh, on this. Um, this journey, but he's also a bit of a trickster as well, refusing to find rest in a cadence. The strings hit an open cadence at 9 minutes and 29 seconds, but the piano overrides that too. Because when you hear an open cadence, you're expecting 
That's a dominant chord, and you expect that to resolve to the tonic. But the pianist says, no, no, we're still, I still got more ideas. The strings present a quieter theme. Piano provides a quiet cadence at 9 minutes and 56 seconds. And the material continues mostly with the piano in the lead. I really feel like the piano is saying, okay, he's getting in front of the group and say, look, we're doing this. And the rest of the ensemble is like, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, I imagine this, I always imagine like an office scenario for this, you know. Hmm. We reach a return of familiar um, material at the beginning of the 11th minute, start heading to a cadence, and miracle of miracles, we hear one at about the 11 minute and 54 second mark. We go on from there with a quieter material of the second theme, now reorchestrated with a lot more figuration in it. It gets pretty stormy here in the recapitulation. At about 12 minutes and 50 seconds, we hear the second theme material again, again reorchestrated, with the piano taking the lead. The music gets agitated as it heads for its final cadence at 14 minutes and 13 seconds. <laughs> you still with me, everybody? Okay. <laughs> we get one last false cadence until cascading figuration lands us on the final cadence. This is an interesting movement harmonically and excitingly played. The piano really stands out as it was written to do, but the uh, piano playing of, let me get this guy's name again, uh, Simon Crawford Phillips is is really great and all the instruments are well captured by the recording in fact this is an exceptionally rich sounding recording as i said earlier okay finally we get to the second movement this is actually a familiar theme uh the main theme is uh, from the irish air the last rose of summer and then it's followed by variations on that uh, the piano gets a lot of airtime in this movement too he plays a lot of figuration and cadenza like material in the first minute um, so this is like his little spotlight moment. And at a minute and eight seconds, he gives us the theme, the Last Rose of Summer theme, accompanied by simple arpeggiated triads in the bass. The rest of the ensemble just provides harmonic support. Once the variations start at the beginning of the second minute, the piano is still in the lead, providing all the twists and turns of the melody. I always wonder what the other musicians thought <laughs> of this back in the day. Well, maybe they're just happy to be playing if they're getting paid they didn't care probably <laughs> at, at three minutes and 20 seconds the strings get a chance at the lead melody but we're back to the piano at four minutes for a quick virtuosic variation in triplets the piano plays ominous accompaniment as the strings sigh out the theme towards the end of the fourth minute the last variation features the solo piano playing with lots of decoration at the beginning then the strings come in with imitations Third movement is labeled Adagio Dash Allegro. So that's going to be an introdu a slow introduction followed by a faster main section. The ensemble forms more of a collective than the previous two movements here, which were dominated by the piano. And this main section is a rondo. It's got a chirpy theme. And the episodes all feature virtuos virtuosic piano writing, which highlights the return to the ensemble in the rondo theme section. So the rondo gets more airtime when the main theme comes, but not when it departs. <laughs> Big chords at the beginning. We proceed with ominous pulsing chords briefly before the piano comes in with the excitable theme at about 23 seconds, launching into a full-on melody at about 38 seconds. In the episodes, the pianist, who must be tired by now, uh, <laughs> launches into some high-speed figuration, complete with repeated notes. He takes the lead in the return of the rondo theme, then continues with his quick figuration as the strings take the theme. The next theme is a, has a folk-like quality to it, 
it breaks up into jerky chords, and the Rondo theme returns at 3 minutes and 10 seconds or so, a bit more languidly this time. For the next contrasting episode, the piano produces some solid piano flooring in its accompaniment to its own themes. The Rondo returns in the fifth minute with some flourishes from the piano. All is good-natured, high spirits at this point, and it ends that way. All right, so this is a pretty one-sided work as far as the <laughs> piano goes, <laughs> but it is exciting. It's a really yeah. exciting, and the piano playing is exciting too. Um, I also like the low frequencies of the double bass provided, giving the audio a rich sound. This is a really impressive piece that won't be bettered in performance anytime soon, so make sure you hear it. I would say. You want to say anything about that before the next one? Or? I just really like, you know, the, the piano is impressive, especially this first movement. There's so much development. I, it, yeah. It's like a whole work in itself. And, right. it, and so it's kind of anticlimactic after that, although it's nice. But, yeah, the double bass, you know, this sextet setting is, even though the, the piano is the showcase, the, right. you know, the, the orchestration of, you know, you know, this uh, bigger than what you're used to listening to with, you know, trios or quartets, really. And the sound is fantastic. It's it's really yeah. lush and enveloping when you uh, listen to it, uh, even when they're just sort of, you know, keeping up with whatever the piano is doing, the full range, and especially that right. weighty bass, really, hmm. you know, yeah, it's engaging and exciting uh, sonically and musically. So I, I really liked, I wanted to hear more sextet after this, but I couldn't right. find any, so. Right. Well, there, there's a, there's another one on this album coming later. But yeah, and uh, completely different timbres. Yep. So you might be thinking, oh, you just heard 28 minutes of this recording, and you, you, if you're saying more, please, as I was, <laughs> no worries. There's plenty more to come. Yeah. This is a pretty long album. I think it clocks in at about 78 minutes, mm. so it's like the full length of a traditional CD. Although these days they go a lot longer than that. I've got a few that go up to 88 minutes. I don't know how they do that. Anyway. Introduction, the fourth uh, track is called, is a one-movement work called Introduction at a Russian Dance, Opus 113, number one. This features Adrian Brendel on cello and Benjamin Frith on piano. So we have a new pianist this time. Um, the Russian folk melody is built into a piece of art music in rondo form uh, with a thirds-based tonal plan. The cello has the opening upward-moving theme, after the richness of the double bass in the previous piece, this can come across a little hollow sounding, but that's not the fault of the excellent recording and the ears adjust. We're just missing that mm. depth this time. It's just the programming. You had to, I guess you had to back off a little bit. The cello's theme is heartfelt and beautifully played by Adrian Brendel. The Russian dance starts just after 2 minutes and 30 seconds, and it's articulated fully by the piano. The cello states it next with umpa rhythm by the piano. Um, dun, 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 that kind of thing. There's some serious virtuosic figuration from the piano. Remember, Reese himself would have played the piano part, and he gave himself a lot of time in the spotlight. Um, I'm really enjoying the crystalline recording quality of the piano's top notes, especially. Uh, gorgeously executed and captured, the Rondo Russian dance theme returns in the fifth minute, and we're off to a section in a minor key next. Uh, the Rondo theme returns. We get a bit more figuration before the final cadence is emphatically reached. So this, this work is over when it's over. Tracks 5 to 7, we get a piano trio in C minor, opus 143. This features the uh, pianist of the, uh, the sextet that we heard, Simon Crawford Phillips. And then we have Stephanie Gonley, again from the... Uh, 
Sextet, and Adrian Brendel, who we heard on every track so far, uh, on the cello. This heavily recalls Beethoven's music, this piano trio. Uh, Beethoven actually complained that Rees imitated him too much. But I have to <laughs> say, I wouldn't agree as if you heard the sextet, the, the very first work. It doesn't really sound much like Beethoven, although it does sound Beethoven sort of inspired. I mean, his the bigger bones writing is mm. definitely in there than came in the classical period of Mozart and Haydn. All right, so anyway, we go into this piano trio. The first movement... This is track five, uh, Allegro con Brio. This is a story of two characters, as in Beethoven. It opens with a tempestuous C minor theme played predominantly by the piano. Then a more lyrical theme arrives, played by violin and cello. So the rushing piano figure sounds a lot like the opening of the Waldstein Piano Sonata by Beethoven, but it's more heavily played here, and you know, purposely so, uh, with a lyrical string interlude between. A full cadence is reached at 45 seconds, and the music immediately goes on, a la Beethoven. The music suddenly slows down for a lyrical second theme by the strings, and this time the piano follows up. The cello plays the second theme of the sonata at a minute and 30 seconds, very lyrical, with the piano repeating it afterwards in decorated form. At 2 minutes and 50 seconds, we reach the repeat of the opening material. In the sixth minute, we're in the development section. Uh, Rees is rather tricky with the harmony, allowing something to go on for a while so that we think we're in a stable section of the movement, then pulling the rug from under our feet. At 7 minutes and 13 seconds, we reach the recapitulations, which has some extra decorative elements from the strings. At 9 minutes and 43 seconds, we get a bit of an extended solo passage in the strings, then a rush to the final cadence, which is emphatically reached, which means it's solid. It's over. Anyway, second movement, Adagio con Espressione, which has a different, highly improvisatory tone. Um, the violin and cello's lines are often fused as if they were one wide-ranging instrument. And this is a really neat effect. Mm. I rather liked hearing this. The piano starts with chiming chords in the low end, and the strings play the theme in harmony. The cadence is reached just past the one-minute mark, and a contrasting, lightly dance-like theme is introduced. Lovely playing by the ensemble to fuse the string instruments together. I'm also drawn in by the lovely uh, retards taken by the strings going into a cadence um, or the end of a phrase. Retard is a slight slowing down. They're so perfectly atmospherically taken. Um, in the third minute, we're in the opening theme being played with, with some new harmony here. Um, the piano detail comes out beautifully in this excellent recording, as I mentioned earlier. A miracle of tone control by the pianist and mic placement by the engineer. There's a bit of a coda at the end to reach the tranquil ending, but then we get a surprise turn, and the movement launches into the final movement. Hmm. There's no pause between these two, really. The final movement is labeled Prestissimo, and it's a Tarantella, the Italian dance, the southern Italian dance, offset with march-like interludes. Um, it's a ferocious racing speed. The rhythm itself is very aggressive, and the ensemble plays this for all it's worth, seeming to throw caution to the wind, but coming up with perfect articulation and tone. At a minute and nine seconds, we get a slowing down with a theme led by the violin. The rhythm for the fast section is beautifully realized, and the downbeat's highly marked and the rhythm well-articulated and dance-like. They get the style right, not just the speed. There's some nice tinkling piano figuration at 2 minutes and 23 seconds, and after, with the piano and strings trading lines, the main theme repeats, and we reach a satisfying ending. But wait, there's more. <laughs> the last piece on this um, <laughs> album is another sextet, as we said. 
But the instrumentation is completely different. This is a sextet in G minor, opus 142. And this features Benjamin Frith on the piano, uh, who we heard in the uh, the uh, the uh, one movement Andante on uh, Introduction to Russian Dance. Um, Benjamin Frith uh, on piano, Hugh Webb on the harp. So we have a piano and harp in the same work, which was sort of in fashion at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. Mm. Um, Richard Hosford on clarinet, Ursula Laveau on bassoon, Richard Watkins on horn, and Graham Mitchell on the double bass. So we get a double bass again in this piece. I'm, I'm going up here. He's got it. Yeah, it's the same double bass player. I suspected it would be. Um, this was presented principally as a duo for piano and harp, or two pianos, and it could be interpreted also as a sextet as here, or a quintet. So it was written mm. for different possible combinations of instruments. Anyway, the first movement is an allegro ma non troppo, and it's rather sedate in tempo. It's a little bit of a surprise after all the uh, the mm. works we've heard so far, which are often racing at the beginning. Uh, the piano and harp are often treated as one instrument, sort of like the cello and violin in the piano trio that we just heard, with lines continuing from one to the other. And what strikes me right away is the new timbres in this piece. On the first introductory yep. chords, we hear the clarinet in its high end, the bassoon and the harp, then get some arpeggiated chords. Of course, the piano introduces the opening theme, but then the harp comes in to extend its lines. Piano, piano and harp in the same chamber ensemble may seem unusual. As I said, they were the all the rage in London, especially in the early 1800s. You'll want to notice that the piano and harp's lines are extended one to the other in much the same way that the violin and cellos were in the previous piano trio. The second theme, starting just before the second movement, hmm, is sweetly led by the harp. That's not right. Okay, it is, but it is led by the harp. Again, the ensemble, and for me, especially the harp, are beautifully played and captured by the recording. There's a lot of timbral detail added by the horn, bassoon, and clarinet, uh, too much for me to articulate. You'll have to hear this. There's a lot of detail going on in this. The movement is rather gentle with occasional Beethovenian sforzandos interrupting the line. A sforzare is when you suddenly uh, hit, hit the, you know, in a gentle passage, you suddenly put an ax a heavy, sharp accent on a note that off the beat. By 5 minutes and 50 seconds, we're at the recapitulation. Some nice combinations of instruments toward the end in the harmony. There's a brief coda that uh, gives the piano a brief scale figure that the winds take over to draw to the final cadence. Second movement, Adagio con Moto. Piano and harp are given expansive cadenzas in this movement, and the other instruments accompany with homogeneous block chords. Uh, this movement starts with a plaintive rising clarinet line accompanied by the harp, which completes its melodic line. The bassoon then picks up the melodic line, which the piano completes, Gorgeous use of timbre in this movement. The double bass doesn't make as dramatic an appearance in this work as it did in the opening, sextet, but we do hear it deeply creeping in in the second minute. We hear the whole ensemble toward the end of the third minute on sustained chords, and it's a gorgeous combination of timbres. The movement simply winds down to a final chord at the end that doesn't bring the movement to full rest. It leads into the next movement's tonality after a pause. And the final movement, rondo, it has a strong Hungarian folk element to the theme. This is spirited back and forth between the piano and harp and between the wind instruments, on the other hand. Um, all coalesce in the unified ending. Uh, 
Um, the, the Hungarian dance is a lively theme with all of those wonderful timbres being heard. I should mention that the piano, though he's pretty busy, doesn't quite stand out as much as he does in the previous works, probably due to the presence of the harp, which he's sharing material with. There's a sudden darkening to the minor at a minute and 16 seconds, a favorite technique with composers in the classical era. Sections are strongly articulated. At two minutes and two seconds or so, the Hungarian rondo theme comes back, and it's charmingly orchestrated here as it goes. The next departure has a hunting quality to it, with the French horn in the lead. The winds have the entire theme the first time it's articulated. I like the discreet way the double bass is handled in this piece. It's not used in the lush way it is in the first sextet, as I've mentioned, but it makes its presence felt in pinning down the harmony when necessary. And uh, also, all of these works show quite a bit of variety as well. They don't Mm. really... I mean, they all sound like the same composer, but they're not kind of in the same mold. And I was kind of happy to hear that. I thought this album was a major wow Mm. and really must hear for chamber music fans, um, really for any classical music fans. Um, It's thrillingly played music and an exemplary recording. I don't think I've ever heard a bad recording by the Nash Ensemble. They're always exciting. Um, They they always get the measure of the music they're playing and articulate it exceptionally well. And I've been listening to them for... Jeez, it could be thirty years now. They've been—they're not all the same musicians anymore. But uh, hmm. the the ensemble the, of this name has been around for a long, long time. Uh, many of the members have changed over the years. Uh, they always deliver in an exciting way, though, and this album certainly does. All of the works are approached with good energy, and a newcomer to this music can't help but be pulled in buy it as a result so i'd say you have to buy this one but discover something new this is really the recording of the week yeah very engaging the sextet string parts are it's as i said it's lushly orchestrated into you know this great setting for the piano and both the sextet and the trio have this really long and developed first movement to them uh, that has a lot to discover just in that one movement all the things that are happening the sextet with the winds and harp is it's a completely different kind of mm. setting and uh, it's also very enjoyable you know having the bassoon and horn uh, tonalities they're used to good effect too to sort of do different sort of uh, you know tonal impressions as you said the kind of hunt feel with the horn and the bassoon gets a little kind of it's traditional kind of comedy relief role a little bit with the tones but it it makes a nice blend there too and what I found in that piece the most interesting is as you were explaining you know piano and harp in the same sort of uh, field how are you going to differentiate their use because the harp can be used more guitar-like or more piano-like and here it's definitely used more piano-like there are a few cascading kind of you know harp stereotypical figures but i like how he balances out the the use with sort of the overlapping areas of what piano and harp can both do and so he sort of uh, gives equal weight to that and overall on all the pieces the piano parts are virtuosic Uh, you can tell that he was writing you know imagining himself playing these and as a result they're interesting Uh, you can imagine they were a real thrill to play and yeah hyperion makes it all just a great experience to listen to with these great sonics on the recording. So this was a discovery for me, and I'll probably me uh, keep listening to this a few more times at least. 
Yeah, this particular album is going to get a few more outings. I especially like the the C major grand sextet. Yeah, that's at my the beginning. Favorite one it, was too. Just, it was a great, uh, you know, work to get us started. Really fantastic. Mm. Okay, so my last classical work tonight is sort of a, a bit of a greatest hits album. <laughs> it's uh, called yeah. My My Paris, or maybe My Paris, depending on how you want to say it. Um, the fl- flautist, the flute, is played by Ana de la Vega, and uh, she's accompanied by Paul Ravinius on the piano. Now, the piano, he's accompanying, but these are, they're good piano parts for him. And this is on the Pentatone label. Um, so, it's a, there's a lot of French hits on this album. They're arranged yep. for the flute and uh, the piano. Not all of them are written for the flute. Um, but the flute just goes so well with French melodies in yeah. general. It's kind of breathy and soft, sort of like the French language itself. It just kind of articulates the ideas that French composers come up with exceptionally well. Um, there are a few pieces on this that should be hits, too, so it's a nice mix. Um, this album, it's a single CD, and this is what I was talking about before. It's 88 minutes and 25 <laughs> seconds yeah. long on a single CD, and she crammed all her favorites in. I think I kind of had the impression that... And when she was uh, setting up this program, she said, oh, I have to put this one in. I have to put this one in. I didn't want to leave anything out. <laughs> we get it all. Okay? It's a long time. I had to divide my listening into two separate sessions for this. It's a very long album. Anyway, we start out with the piece by Debussy, uh, Prelude from L'Enfant Prodigue. Um, there's some gorgeous piano in this piece. Uh, sensuous flute line to which De La Vega adds a sensuous tone. This this is kind of sensuous and erotic, this work. I kind of liked, I like when Debussy does works like this. Uh, She's very breathy in her playing, which appeals to me, and it also suits this music exceptionally well. Um, Nice phrasing, too. De La Vega is patient with the tempo, and that makes for a winning performance. Um, She lets the music breathe, as it were, just as she's letting herself breathe. How about that? Anyway, this brief work, 2 minutes and 51 seconds, is pretty seductive and sets an appealing tone to the album. Um, yeah, okay. Anyway, second uh, track, Claire de Lune by Debussy. We've heard every piano student we've ever heard <laughs> play this. Um, it's originally for solo piano. Uh, this works well for flute. Um, de la Vega is sensitive and light with her tone. I do miss the thirds in the opening theme in this arrangement, mm. though, because it's the, the opening, you hear that harmony in the uh, melody line. Uh, For the flute, everything needs to be reduced to a single tone, though. Uh, There are plenty of niceties of phrasing that bring out the sensuality of the melodic material. Track three, Gabriel Fauré, another favorite composer of mine, Uh, Après un rêve, After a Dream. This is a big classical hit, too. It's originally a song, um, but so it has words. But not here. It's been arranged for many solo instruments and not just the flute. Uh, Foray's writing doesn't attain the sensuality of Debussy's, but no matter, we get a beautiful tone here with a light, appealing vibrato for this famous melody. Track four, Morceau de Concours by Gabriel Foray. Um, this was re- Morceau de Concours means a competition piece. <laughs> you could have given it a name, but anyway, yeah. that's what it's called. Um, it's brief and very appealing, actually. Very melodic. And the title is nondescript, though. It's pretty gorgeous and surely wants to expose the quality of the flautist's tone in the competition. There's no real virtuosity here. Anyway, De La Vega wins this competition. She's got a great tone. There's an especially well-taken line that winds downward at around 2 minutes and 25 seconds. Track 5, Jules Massenet. 
Meditation from Thais. This is um, a really famous piece too. It's usually played um, in its orchestral. It's an ex. It's it's uh, from an opera, and it's an orchestral interlude, and it's usually played as an encore by orchestras. But here, we get a flute and piano version of it. Um, it, it it's played usually by a violin soloist, actually, with an orchestra, and it's got great orchestration. And we're missing that here. Um, it's meditative, as the title suggests. It's a beautiful melody and a great transcendent chord change. You can hear it at 53 seconds. Um, what's really holding my interest in this program is the flute tone and phrasing and the memorability and familiarity of the pieces programmed. We haven't had much variety, though, I have to say, mm. and we're only on track five. Um, all of the work so far have had a melting the heart quality. All right, Anna, we get it. You have a gorgeous tone. <laughs> anyway, onwards. <laughs> Uh, Cecilia Chaminade, here we go. We're going to get a little more of a brain workout here. Concertino for flute and piano in D major, opus 107. This is an unfamiliar work to me, but an appealing one. It clocks in at 8 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, we get some working out of themes in this. This is the intellectual quality I was talking about. Uh, we get some rhythmic energy by 2 minutes and 20 seconds. First time we've heard that. Um, the other pieces just didn't call for it. And it's time, nice to hear some contrast, finally. Uh, some very pretty orchestration right at and before the fourth minute between the flute and piano. We hear some rhythmic activity and breathy staccato bursts from the flute. Again, beautifully taken. The texture changes to something more traditionally romantic in the middle of the fourth movement. By 6 minutes and 30 seconds... We've got the tender main theme back. At 7 minutes and 44 seconds, there's a rather virtuosic trilling line in the flute to a light leaping rhythm. Uh, this piece is full of interesting surprises and a real discovery. Make sure you hear that. That's by Cecile Chaminade, track 6. Track 7 through 9 is a full sonata for flute and piano by Poulenc, Francis Poulenc. Um... This is a pretty famous piece. If you know anyone who plays the flute, they've probably played this. Um, the first movement, Allegretto Malinconico. Um, the opening is taken much faster than any other version I've heard, and I'm most familiar with uh, Emmanuel Pahoud's performance with Eric Lesage on their album called Paris from like 20 years ago now. Jeez, I don't mm. even remember. The speed here leads us to some virtuosic playing of the chirping, trilling line in the second theme. Really beautiful. The movement slows down with the chords beginning in the second minute. At 3 minutes and 25 seconds, we hear the recapitulation with the first theme repeating. It actually sounds a bit slower now, but that could simply have to do with the way the movement has been shaped. Uh, it's an interesting, appealing interpretation, a little different than recordings from the past, and I think that's what you want. You want to make your mark on this famous work. The second movement is labeled Cantilena, Asselante. It's a ponderous tempo is taken for the slow movement. De La Vega is still getting a beautiful tone, but is reining it in a bit for the, a kind of austere feel in this movement. There's not much vibrato in the tone, only at certain points when emotion is called for. There's a nice quickening of tempo at 2 minutes and 30 seconds for a new section and a dramatic outburst at 3 minutes that quickly subsides. We start to get a more ominous feel from the piece at this point. At 3 minutes and 35 seconds, the opening theme repeats, and we... We get a, we go to the end. Third movement, 
presto giocoso, a very dancey, rhythmically vibrant movement. Here, the loudness of the piano and flute betray the rather large size of the space the recording was made in. There's lots of room reverb, but not so much that detail is obscured. And that's a relief, because the rhythm and excitable feel of the movement is well caught in this performance. There's some virtuosic trilling in the middle of the fast scale lines by the flute. Very impressive. At a minute and 43 seconds, we get the slower middle section. At 2 minutes and 16 seconds, the flute gets a brief recitative line, then continues its declamation over soft piano chords. At 2 minutes and 55 seconds, the circus atmosphere resumes. And at 3 minutes and 6 seconds, we're back to the excitable main melody, which we ride to the rather inconclusive ending. Moving on to track 10, um, a piece by Maria Theresia von Paradis. I've never heard of this woman, but she was born in 1759, died in 1824, so she was a contemporary of Mozart and Beethoven. And Ries. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is a piece called Sicilienne, so it's got that Siciliano rhythm. Um, it's a We're back to the uh, musical bonbons again. Uh, to help relieve us of the more intellectual but no less appealing material that Chaminade and Poulon provided us with. Uh, the Siciliano rhythm is slowly played, and the flute spins out a flowing melodic line over it. We've got De La Vega's beautiful tone in full force here again. She floats the melody over the gentle half-note, quarter-note rhythm of the Siciliano. Lovely lyrical piece. Track 11, Sassons, Romance for Flute and Piano in D-flat major, opus 37. This has a somber beginning. After some somber opening chords, the piano provides an undulating, arpeggiated chord bed for the flute to float over. Uh, Sansons gives the flute some eloquent solo moments at the second minute, ending this with a trill flourish. Then at around 2 minutes and 45 seconds, a new section begins, with the piano playing gentle chords while the flute coaxes the listener above. There are some lovely turns of phrase in the third minute, and for... After 4 minutes and 30 seconds, we get a repeat of the beautiful theme, leading to a lovely light ending on a vibrato-heavy final note on the flute. Track 12, another real find, Lily Boulanger. This was uh, the uh, great teacher, Nadia Boulanger's sister, who died very young and may have been one of the great French composers of the 20th century had she lived. Um, this is a nocturne from uh, two pieces. Um has a similar piano opening to Liszt's La Campanella, like it's got that dun 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 kind of figure, and uh, the repeating notes leap from octave to octave, as in La Campanella. Uh, it doesn't do the virtuosity that La Campanella does. The flute plays a melody over this figure. The piano line really throws this melody into relief, as the piano is constantly moving while the flute plays the legato melody. A lovely composition, well executed by the duo. I would encourage you to absolutely hear this too. Track 12, Lily Boulanger. She's a composer whose music really needs to be rediscovered. Or maybe discovered for the first time. Tracks 13 and 14 are by Mozart. Now you might be wondering what Mozart is doing <laughs> on this album. Well, because he's not French. But he was in Paris in 1778. And uh, he wrote a bunch of uh, works while he was there. And this is one of them. Sonata in E minor for violin and piano, K304-300C. Now, this is um, obviously arranged for the flute here. Um, it's a nice choice of works, actually. It works well with the flute. Um, the softness of the flute's attack changes the whole profile of this work, mm. which sounds more pointed and aggressive with the violin. 
It's a nice change in approach, serves the work well. De La Vega employs a lot of lovely sounding staccatos to her theme. However, with the light classical era piano writing, the piano really does blur into a haze during fast passage work, given the room's spacious acoustic. That said, the pianist, Paul Ravinius, seems aware of the room's acoustic and tempers his playing to suit it as much as he can. Uh, the flute sounds great throughout, and she's really the star here. Um, the work is a straightforward sonata with a repeat of the exposition, the development beginning at around 4 minutes and 50 seconds, 15 seconds, sorry. There's a clever rewrite of the piano line at the recapitulation, which begins at around 4 minutes and 45 seconds. At 6 minutes and 10 seconds, we get a coda that eventually takes us to the emphatic final chords. Second movement, and the last movement, is a tempo di minuetto, a minuet. It starts gently in the piano. The flute comes in with uh, the second statement of the theme. It's all elegance, this movement. There's a contrasting theme that follows. The trio select section starts at 2 minutes and 33 seconds, sounding softer with its gentle piano chords. All right, track 15, uh, Maurice Ravel, Pièce en forme de habanera. There's a change of pace here. The piano plays the habanera rhythm. The flute rhapsodizes above it beautifully, of course. Track 16, another very famous uh, work, uh, originally for piano. Um, Satie's Gymnopédie Number no. 1. Uh, De La Vega's breathy tone and beautiful phrasing fits itself into the poise of this Satie classic very well. Track 17, Debussy, the menuet from Petite Suite. This was originally for a piano duet. And if you were, have been with us from the beginning, you might remember that uh, Stephen Osborne and Paul Lewis French duets mm. album that we picked as one of our albums of the year last year. Uh, they do this on that album. Um, we get enough of the detail of the piano's line given the acoustic. The harp gets the main theme, of course, and plays it breathily and beautifully. Um, De La Vega communes well with Debussy's whole sensual antique aesthetic. Or, you know, he's got this kind of, you know, ancient Greek kind of <laughs> <you know, laughs> thing going there. Um, Debussy, next piece, La Fille aux Chevaux de Lan, a very famous piano piece. This is another one that you've probably heard uh, mauled by many piano students <laughs> in your life. Um, the melody is taken rather quickly and freely, but a sensuous, breathy tone always works in Debussy's lines, and it fits well here. Um, I enjoyed the pianist's sensitive, evocative contribution. Okay, and the last track, track 19, is the is a pretty big one. Uh, Bizet, and, uh, I, and I guess it was orchestrated or arranged by Daniel Rune, who was born in 1979, so he's um, a young guy. Maybe not anymore, <laughs> but uh, I keep thinking 1979 was recent. I don't know. I was in high school then. Uh, Carmen Suite. Now, this has been arranged from different arrangements from uh, Bourne, Horowitz, Hubei, Sarasat, and Waxman. So Pablo Sarasat, Franz Waxman, Hubei. I've, I've got a few. He features in a few of the... Uh, uh, romantic Piano Concerto series on Hyperion Records. Vladimir Horowitz, the great Ukrainian pianist. And Bourne, I don't know his first name, I'm afraid. Anyway, it's a combination of all of these. And it's got three themes from uh, the Carmen Opera. The three famous ones. Uh, the three of the... There are five or so very famous themes in that opera, but this is three of them that Carmen sings. Um, dramatic Piano Tremolos start this concert work. The flute starts its thematic material rather gently. There are some interesting piano chords in this. Once we get to the famous habanera aria, 
There's L'Amour at the Oiseau Rebelle, you know, the most famous aria in the work. The piano lays down the rhythm and the flute plays the theme straight once, then goes into some virtuosic figuration on it. Very impressive. We haven't gotten to hear um, De La Vega play a straight virtuoso piece yet, although there have been virtuosic passages in some of the works we've heard. So we're actually getting to hear her technique here. Uh, she's very impressive, and she maintains her breathy, sensual tone throughout, uh, giving Carmen a bit of a soft-toned profile. She's very smoky and passionate in the opera. Um, she's, she sounds a little <laughs> more approachable here. <laughs> At the four-minute mark, we're in the next aria, which is the Seguidilla, Près de Rampart de Seville, which is um, slower and more ominous. At seven minutes, there's a third aria, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's the one that goes tra la 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 da 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 da. And I, I don't remember what it's called. Um, the whole work works like a fast, slow, fast work, um, sort of like an old Vivaldi concerto in its form. The flute gets to show some quick, chirpy virtuosity here. It's a fantastic performance. Um, but this is an electrifying aria, and the, that quality isn't in the arrangement, or at least in the flute tone. Um, no matter. It's all impressive and appealing and satisfying. There's a nice rush to the end, where a shout from the flautist, I think, uh, precedes the final chord. So, and to conclude, this album is called My Paris, and Ana de la Vega's Paris is of a very certain type. A type that appeals to all of us. Sensuous, melting releasing one's cares to the beauty of the city and the art that was produced in it. There are many other Parises, and it would have been nice to hear some of those on this album for contrast. <laughs> um, but it's a gorgeous record and a good one to have, especially for people just getting interested in classical music, because it's got a lot of very famous works on it. Um, you'll be hearing famous works being played as well as they can be played in this arrangement. Uh, that said, there's nothing not there's nothing not to like here. But perhaps it should be taken in separate 20-minute listening sessions because it's, uh, it's very long. And I could have used a bit more variety, let's say. But no problem with these um, um, interpretations or performances. Yeah, it's a lot of flute. <laughs> it's a lot once. of flute. And she, well, I should also mention, while she does change her, um, her attack, like her timbre, for mm. certain pieces to, to, for variety. So it, it does stay... Interesting. It's not like she's just using the same sound for eighty mm. minutes, but it's still like it's it's not enough. It's a lot of flute, like you said. Well, I suppose you know, going with the theme, my Paris, the first part, the first five tracks are sort of requisite, you know, yeah. the the French greatest hits, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but mm. I was sort of zoned out be because those are some <laughs> of the more you know all the. They're the most familiar melodies. They're also of a character that sort of uh, is rather yeah. relaxing. So for me, when I go back and listen to this, I'm just going to skip to track six. Yes. Uh, because good I don't choice. need to hear those other <laughs> things. I that did I, like the I first track, so though. That would be a good yeah, they're nice. program yeah. track one and then go to track six. But uh, where yeah. it became interesting for me was with the Chaminade. Yeah, and that was a good piece. Yeah. Good piece. It shows off a bit more of her, you know, virtuosity, and it was something new and fresh for me. And that continues into the Polonc, yeah. you know, more engaging and virtuosic kind of things. And from there on, yeah, I was uh, more engaged with it. So uh, the program improves there with some more exciting and engaging numbers. So hmm. um, yeah, break it up. It's it's a long recording, regardless. Uh, the sound. 
it's a bit echoey for my tastes in that room, which has in good acoustics. Works especially. Mm. I would have maybe preferred it to be a little bit more closer mic'd so that we could still get that nice reverb, but get a little bit more sort of um, immediacy in the mm. tone of the flute and the piano too. Because sometimes, uh, depending on the sustain that's going on, it sort of seems to be... <laughs> Uh, getting right. really atmospheric in that in that room. It's not bad, and you don't lose the detail. I just thought it could be a little bit inched up, maybe I th- closer with I the I think mics. this rec- recording was made to make her sound at her best. I mean, she was definitely the star, so they wanted to yeah. Yeah, put her in the spotlight. Nice playing, and it's a mix. Uh, as you say, if you're going to do this sort of uh, all of the French greatest hits kind of thing, they're all there. But there are some interesting pieces we haven't heard before mm. and uh, some more challenging things as well. So it's sort of a comprehensive, you know, ode to French composers and uh, some things, you know, for flute and some things, you know, that are adapted for flute. So you get a little bit of variety along the way there, too. Okay, so we're going to leave the classical chamber now and go into the uh, the jazz chamber. The jazz chamber. Yeah, I guess here I'm just sort of mixing and matching with the, yeah. the chamber theme. Things that could have uh, gone into different categories if we had, you know, an episode with a theme. But we've done a lot of these piano and vibes and organ. And these are some inf- interesting combinations, plus one that doesn't fit anywhere else, really. And so I thought, yeah, we'll just get them under a, a bigger kind of uh, theme yeah, here. Got a few programs like that coming up, I think. So Yeah. So we've had a, a couple of piano episodes recently, but here's one that uh, didn't slot in yet. But I wanted to get to, uh, it's a piano, I guess, quartet and sometimes quintet with the addition of a sax. It's by a Spanish pianist, Roger Moss. And this is his recording, Transparent, and it's on the Fresh Sound New Talent label, which we've done quite a few recordings from. They're always coming up with uh, interesting new artists. And uh, Moss says of this recording, For this album, I have recorded some of my most intricate, complete compositions in regards to concept, style, and music. I've tried to have a good time with my traveling partners, and in that, at least, I've succeeded I also tried to flow with clarity and intensity. Uh, This is, for me, a confirmation of everything that motivates and moves me, everything I search for in music and in life. So I was kind of drawn to this, just uh, I didn't know Moss's playing, and when I put it on, I got some kind of fresh vibes from it. So I thought I was going to check it out, and I liked the combination of piano with guitar, too, and we get some sax added to the mix with all original music here. So we've got Roger Moss on piano. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. Uh, Jome Jombart, guitar, and Bori Albero, bass, Jorge Rossi on drums, and on some tracks we've got Santi de la Rubia on tenor sax. And so yeah. we're going to start out the program, Yanuras del Transito. And we get a sense of Moss's very rhythmic playing from this first track, which kind of drew me in. Uh, so Moss starts it out with a subdivided rhythmic piano chord riff uh, for an eight-bar intro. You can feel the six-beat rhythm uh, of the piece in this. Yombard adds some guitar chimes and trills as it goes uh, to work into his entrance. Guitar, bass, and drums come in then, and the guitar has a kind of halftime feel that with a loping line over the piano part 
that has some uh, fast rising notes in it. So the piano is very busy and then the guitar is sort of floating in a half speed there. Uh, there's a contrasting section with syncopation that keeps it pushing forward. And Yombard adds some cool speedy triplet figures in there. It's kind of unique. He also solos first on guitar, uh, starting with some really nasty downward pitch bends that will pull you into it. Uh, then working in and out of the harmonies with stop and start phrases. I like his clear attacks and hints at bluesy ideas. Uh, Rossi is beating out some hard cymbal accents underneath that. Uh, Umbart ends with some cool trilly ideas and an upward run. Then Moss takes over with an intense solo of punctuated rhythmic lines, tumbling figures and hammering chords. It builds to a big climax. Things settle down a bit for a little bass work from Albero before heading back around the melody. Track two, Sora y Escuma. This tune has crossing lines of guitar and right-hand piano and bass and left-hand piano together. So it's kind mm. of uh, crossing over, uh, intertwining effect. That movement uh, kind of disguises the meter, but it feels like it's in a six. Rossi keeps a steady beat sounding like one brush and one stick maybe getting a, a mix of uh, hits there. The next section has some interesting cross interplay with descending piano figures and rising bass. Some weaving piano and guitar lines work into a piano solo from Moss. He plays with fluid but punctuated phrases building upward over the chords. The gaps and accents lock in tightly with the drums and bass. Yombard is next on guitar with a softer and more fluid tone on this tune. Uh, they repeat the melody, vamping on it a bit for Rossi to whip it up on the drums underneath. Track three is called Beyond Loneliness. This one is a waltzing minor tune with a melancholy mood. Moss starts with an arpeggiated intro. The melody is pretty with lots of space. Yombard adds light textured rhythm guitar behind Moss's melody, and Rossi has nice brush accents on the drum skins. Uh, Albero rhythmic pulses in the bass lines. Then Yomart has a turn on the melody himself. He underplays it tastefully and keeps anticipation until Moss joins him on parts of that melody, building it up together. It comes down soft for a solo from Yombart. He keeps the restrained approach nicely. And then Moss takes over with a more animated and rhythmic solo, lifting the spirit of the tune gets percussive with chords to a climax before it calms down, before the others leave Moss to a solo exposition. Uh, again, he makes it dynamic until the others join back in for the final softer exposition uh, for a little outro. And listen for Moss's final unexpected flourish at the end to finish it. Track four is called Dear Masters. This begins with a heavy repeated two chord intro from Moss over the plodding slow four beat in the bass and drums. Here Santi de Rubia joins in on tenor sax and he and Yombard work the modal melody in unison. The field changes up to swing on the way through the melody in spots. Uh, Moss has some rhythmic chord fun and Rossi mixes it up a bit at the end of the strain uh, into a solo from Moss that comes out swinging. Uh, there's a lot of rhythmic variety in his lines and gaps creating anticipation uh, right to the end of the solo. De La Rubia solos next. He's smooth and relaxed, uh, even when he gets more intense with faster and high register figures. They work through the melody again, 
uh, with Moss adding some improvisations between the sax and guitar lines, uh, some subdivided chord ideas and chiming chords uh, as it fades out. Yeah, the drummer really likes the uh, cymbals too. He, yeah, he plays a lot of them throughout yeah. this album. Yeah, it's one thing I kept drawing my ear. I really like that sound, so I was kind of yeah. happy to hear that. You know, not being a, a drummer, but you know, I noticed it's one place where drummers can get distinctiveness in tone in their cymbal yeah. selection, the sizes and materials and brands. So they sort of get their signature. Uh, sort of touch there. Right. I like splashy drum parts, though. I don't, I don't mm. think you hear enough of them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I like it, too. Bruno's Rhythm, track five. This one has an ostinato bass and left-hand piano figure that form sort of a bass in the intro for a, a shared minor melody line in the sax, piano, and guitar. It changes to a lighter major tonality in parts of the melody. Uh, the next section breaks up the rhythm for bass like a bass and drum figure and drum hits underneath before it turns lighter again. De Lubria lifts out of it with a free floating solo. The mood alternates happy and tense over Moss's bright and then dense chords. Uh, Moss solos next, letting chords hang with choppy and heavy rhythmic figures. It returns to the intro vamp and they go through the melody again and it gets lighter as the guitar and piano continue and then slows to a sparse ending. Track six, California Sunset. It's a song with a very syncopated pushing melody line on Yombart's guitar. Moss has little answering phrases and chords. And there's interesting bass movement below. Rossi keeps the tight brush slaps going on this one too. The meter is hard to figure out here. It's like a combination of 5-8 and 6-8 measures. I don't think it's 11-8 though, but sometimes it could be. Um, Moss solos first with tight rhythmic phrases. It goes into four beat, uh, but the accents change up uh, the feel of the movement a lot. Jombard solos next. He keeps it tight here with springy phrases. And then they go around the melody once more with some vamping chords from Moss and a stretched ending strain. Track seven, El Salvatore. A bass and piano ostinato figure started out with offset right hand piano chords. Yombard comes in with a melody line doubled by Moss in the piano. The bass figure rhythm stays the same, but it changes up the pitches with the harmonic progression. There's a rhythmically contrasting B section, and they go around the melody twice. Moss is the first to solo, starting out with little rhythmic figures and choppy chords. As he goes along, he ties his ideas together more and adds some speedy runs, working into percussive ideas, higher notes, and then heavy chords. Yombard has a playful solo with some bouncy and trilly figures, percussive picked figures, and some more pitch bending in this one. Uh, they go back to the original rhythmic figures moving around the chords uh, without the melody once for Rossi to get some drum work in. Then he drops out when Yombard and Moss bring the melody back over the bass line, uh, but he joins in the B section. They end it with the ostinato uh, into a little piano variation. Track eight is musical ratios. Uh, Moss starts it out alone with some splashy chords in rubato but jumpy fashion. He had some rolling figures and bass lines. The others join in and it gets a slow beat from Rossi under the melody line on Yombart's guitar. The second section has a nice bluesy spot. It gets a steady push from the bass and Moss's accented syncopation on chords. Moss has a more relaxing solo, leaving space between phrases, but he keeps a bounce in his lines and he also adds a bit of that bluesy feel in the same spot 
that sort of lead, lends to that uh, where Yombard did it. And Yombard has some good spongy kind of rhythmic rhythm guitar going on behind that. Uh, it's, I call it spongy. It just has that kind of, uh, I don't know, flexible hmm. nature to it. They go back to the melody once more, slowing it down to a tension-causing chiming chord and then a final rolling chord finish. Hmm. A unique one here, track nine, blues for a while. It's a unique minor blues in 5-4 and in a 24-bar form. Moss keeps the arpeggiated ostinato figure in the left hand, joined by Albero on bass. De La Rubia joins back in on the melody with Yombard. The rhythm changes up where the melody gets more slinky. Then they go around the whole thing twice. Moss is the only soloist here. He keeps it rhythmic and adds some interesting left-hand diversions. And they go around the bluesy melody again, and the tag phrase has little pause uh, before Moss's final understated straight minor chord. Yeah, this didn't sound bluesy to me at all, really. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of unique. Yeah, yeah, it was good. No, but I liked it. I, yeah. I don't mean to quirky. You know, I don't mean to, to come across. It was quirky. I liked. I enjoyed it though. Track ten is El Señor del Caos. It's a hard boppy modal tune with kind of ominous alternating piano chords to push a slinking sax and guitar melody line with an eight-beat feel. There's a contrasting strain where things brighten into a major tonality for just a moment, and then they kick up the uh, swing drive there too. Uh, De La Rubia solos first, weaving through the modes and keeping it smooth enough to charm some snakes with those modes here. <laughs> uh, he gets a, a little bit more angsty with some higher register tone. Yombard solos next, working some dissonances and zippy figures in his lines. Um, zippy uh, is always a good quality. Yeah. <laughs> Moss solos last with rhythmic figures, pressing through the modes, building higher into chiming chords. Uh, they go around the melody once more, Rossi pushing it hard to the end and adding a final crash <laughs> to the statement. <laughs> and we're going to end up with the title track, Transparent. Here, Moss rings out sustained chords on a slow beat, Albero and Yombart work an unhurried melee line together on bass and low register guitar. So that's kind of a cool effect, uh, bass mm. and guitar together. After a pause, they go around once more. Rossi adds soft hits and cymbals to the slow three-beat meter. Uh, the next strain lifts with guitar into the higher register and Moss chiming in together in spots there. Uh, there's a short chiming interlude section before Yombart has a little fluid solo. And uh, Moss makes it chime again before a soft reset that builds to some rolling chords and then a final harmonically unexpected uh, set of chiming chords uh, sort of outside of the tonal center, just to make sure you're still paying attention. So, yeah, mm. kind of fun. I enjoyed Moss's compositions. There's some tricky meters, unexpected turns in his tunes. His piano playing is always rhythmic, lots of percussive energy. It has a good feel to it. Yombart's playing is kind of enigmatic on guitar. He adjusts his tone and style to the unique atmosphere of each tune. And the bass and drums lock in, but they also can flow or stick in spots on the more ambiguous uh, meters and tunes. Uh, so good ensemble playing. De La Rubia's sax is nicely flowing, and it's a nice tonal contrast to the you know, kind of clear guitar and piano sounds. So I thought it's overall fresh compositions, good flows on the recording, enthusiastic playing. Interested to hear some more of Moss's uh, playing and compositions. Yeah, I thought this was uh, pretty inventive and highly like involving. 
hmm. album. We hear a lot of styles, and it's it's kind of hard to describe my thoughts on it, really. Um, the material wants to engage your intellect along with your pleasure centers. Hmm. And um, That's a good thing. What it, yeah, what I, that's always a good thing, I think. Uh, what I mean by that, though, is that it sounds a lot like a lot of thought was put into getting the compositions to come out a certain way, or at least the themes, and then when the soloing starts, you know, people are expressing themselves. The themes are all angular and elongated, but all the solos are pleasing. I felt more in my comfort zones during the soloing, hmm. but, you know, you don't always want to be in your comfort zone either. You want that little right. challenge, and we got that from the uh, the themes. Even some of the soloing was pushing me into new territory, especially the guitar. Yeah. Um, so it was, an, you know, it was an interesting listen. I, you know, I was pretty compelled by this. Yeah, those angular, you know, that first track, I could still hear it in my head, you know, that <laughs> those little guitar kind of uh, zips and runs, uh, it sticks in there. Right. So, yeah. yeah, kind of interesting, uh, unique characteristics to it. So, right, not, yeah. not your ordinary album. I, was, I enjoyed that. Yeah, from Spain. Uh, so thanks, Roger. And check out some more stuff that yeah. you do. Uh, recommended for some fresh European jazz listening there. All right, I could barely resist the next recording uh, because we we love organ and we love vibes, but I don't think I've ever heard them together, really. Uh, but that's the <laughs> focus of this new group, uh, which is called Organic Ear Food. And of course, we couldn't resist the title, yeah. the name of the group exactly. or the title of the album either. And a great album mm. cover here too. Yeah, it actually looks like a classical album yeah, it cover. Does. It's like a yeah. paint. It's like a painting of fruit Fruits from the seventeenth century yeah. or something. Yeah, all these. Yeah. Uh, probably genetically. I hope not gen genetically modified fruits, but. <laughs> Or maybe AI yeah. painted it. You never yeah, know. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't look it up. It might be a real. That's the band thing. name and the album title, Organic Ear Food. Uh, this is on Jazz Sick Records. I thought organ and vibes. How can we go wrong here? It can't possibly be genetically modified if they're called organic ear I food. Know. I'm I mean, just <laughs> goofing around here. Anyway, we've got the uh, great Canadian pianist uh, Bernie Sineski here. Yeah. And we've got Stefan Bauer on vibraphone and marimba. I should say not only vibes, but marimba, which makes this very interesting. And Peter Baumgartner on drums to round out this trio. So Sineski is originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And he had, I guess, classical piano lessons from a young age, then became interested in jazz. And he relocated to Toronto in the late 60s. And he had some uh, big name gigs uh, associated uh, playing with Chet Baker, Art Blakey, Art Farmer, Art Pepper. I guess I first came to know him uh, because uh, while well, I was out in the western part of the state in uh, Fredonia for a while playing in the Big Ben at the university and we idolized the Rob McConnell and Boss Brass uh, mm. Big Ben. You know, that was the, the band of the uh, 80s. 70s and 80s and great arrangements great players went up to toronto a couple of times got to meet uh, guido basso the trumpet player from there but uh Sineski, i played piano with them for a while and i knew that he played organ as well but i hadn't really heard much of his organ music so when i saw that i thought well uh, i want to check that out also he's on a recording i've been waiting to come out on streaming that's uh this canadian group the cookers quintet they have a album all called the path 
but it doesn't seem to be on streaming yet. So, is that the the group, the Cookers? That they're, or is that a different group? Different group, yeah. The Cookers oh, okay. Quintet. These are uh, Canadian musicians. So, I see. I hope right. that that will come out, and I can uh, get a listen to that as well. Yeah. So I guess here, let's see. The Stefan Bauer is uh, Brooklyn-based, but a German vibraphonist. And it says here the one of the most famous drummers in North Rhine-Westphalia, Peter Baumgartner. And uh, so I thought, well, this sounds interesting. Let's see how vibes and organ will work out. And it's a really interesting little journey here. Yeah, spoiler alert, it worked out. Yeah, it did work <laughs> out. Um, Actually, I loved this record, but yeah. I'll get to that later. <laughs> and so we've got a nice combination of uh, some Sineski originals and uh, some other covers of other composers' tunes here. We're going to start out with One Never Knows. This is one of Sineski's originals. Uh, it's a nice snaking intro line in unison on the organ and vibes. Uh, they stick together through the next rising section and syncopated strain. There are lots of change-ups in the melody form. I guess one never knows the title. You never know the meter of this song because it goes into a slow waltzing tempo and then it changes up to 4-4. Four, four. Uh, they go through all the sections again so you get a better feel for it. Uh, it breaks into a harder driving swing in 4-4 four, four, and Bauer switches to marimba for his solo. Uh, Sineski has the bass pedals chugging below it. Uh, they switch up the meters in the solos following the regular melody form. Sineski follows with the solo using a, a really clean organ tone. That seems to be his approach, at least here on this recording, and it goes with the vibes or marimba well, so you don't have any kind of, you know, Leslie or oscillating effect. Right. You have these clean tones so you can hear everything. Uh, both solos are short, and then they go around the melody again to take it out. Uh, it's a tricky tune as far as structure and meter goes to get a first taste of this uh, nice tonal combination of mallets and organ. But uh, as you said, it does work out really well in, in the blending uh, category. Yeah, in fact, one never knows what uh, combination of instruments you're going to hear either. There's no. a really <laughs> rich palette on this yeah. song, this tune. Yeah, it's, it's uh, nice. So I really, yeah, I like this a lot. And I also did, like you, really appreciated the uh, understatedness of the organ. So you can just get mm. to hear it in its sort of sort of understated form yeah. as opposed to playing out. You know, you know if, if he um, sort of did more uh, swelling or varied tones, as we like on organ, I just think that would swallow up you know the yeah the nature of vibes and marimba so i think with the way he approaches it and the tones that he uses on this album is what really makes it work yeah we're going to get uh, a tune everyone knows my favorite things rogers and hammerstein uh next mm-hmm. uh, a rising and ringing rubato vibes intro starts it out and then bauer gets rhythmic with soft chords uh, for Sineski to come in with the melody, and he does that in the lower register of the organ. Baumgartner sketches rather lightly on the cymbals, and Bauer takes a turn on the melody when it modulates. Uh, Bauer solos first on vibes over the easy riding waltz tempo. He has a relaxed feel, even when he plays speedier figures. Uh, Sineski's solo here has some interesting slinky lines in the lower register, going in and out of the chords. He varies his attack sometimes with a more percussive sound and has some chasing lines uh, that get out there. Baumgartner adds fills and kicks underneath, and he brings back uh, the melody with little rhythmic figure leads, takes it up into the uh, higher register, 
Sineski does before Bauer gets another turn himself. They vamp out on the chords for a bit, giving Baumgartner some uh, hit time and uh, bring it to a soft but rhythmic close uh, with a nice falling off line by Sineski. Track three, ever so often a tune by Bill Eames. Uh, vibes and organ work in step on the melody at the start here. Baumgartner enters with a couple of drum kicks, but then keeps it light and scratchy under the softly flowing lines. Uh, Bauer takes a break for Sineski to solo. He makes it mostly smooth with connected lines and some undulating chordy figures. As Bauer returns to push it up into a climax, takes his own solo that transitions seamlessly from vibes to marimba midway through. Uh, clean attacks and relaxed uh, flowing lines on both instruments. Uh, they float through the melody again, ending with a nice final line by Sineski that goes up and then all the way down into the low register. Uh, a Sineski original for track four, Blues for EJ. Uh, it's a 12-bar blues with some interesting chords. The, the first time around is an intro that trades off phrases with the drums back and forth, and then they go around the main melody 12-bar form twice, uh, working it together on organ and marimba. Bauer gets the solo first, while Sineski walks deep bass lines on the pedals, adds occasional chord hits. Uh, marimba doesn't have much sustain, but Bauer can make the gaps create anticipation, as he does here, before working into speedier lines. Then Sineski builds his solo here nicely, connecting the ideas in his phrases, and then getting to some more uh, darting double-time ideas. And Bauer and Sineski work some four-bar descending riffs, to give Baumgartner two choruses to round out uh, the blues form on the drums. They all work through the melody again twice and finish it with a mirroring outro to the beginning. Track five is Trinidad, Newt Hogson. Hmm. Sineski starts it solo with a rubato organ intro that has some nice movement between the bass and parts. Uh, he sets a tempo with an arpeggiated figure and Bauer comes in with a vibes melody while Baumgartner adds light brush drumming. He really lets the notes ring out here. Uh, Sineski takes a softer rhythmic solo and then Bauer has his own. And here they play behind each other during the solos, uh, creating a nice lushness of tone. And Bauer takes the melody to the end with a lush slowdown and cymbals. Track six, the Cole Porter tune, It's All Right With Me. Now this is usually in 4-4, but they give it a brisk waltz feel in this arrangement. Sineski has energetic syncopated chords pushing the intro along over Baumgartner's brisk cymbals and Bauer's improvisations. Sineski takes the melody in the lower register, keeping a nice bounce in it, and Bauer takes over on the bridge for a nice contrast, and Baumgartner has tight snare fills underneath it all. Bauer plays a very melodic vibe solo that sails along, again switching midway to marimba, oppressing with, oppressing, not oppressing, impressing with his mm -hmm. agility and inventive rhythmic ideas. Sineski's solo is inventive as well, uh, fun with some alternating riff ideas, weaving lines, a few bluesy touches, and then an animated climax before connecting directly to a final run through the melody and some final trading of improvisations with Bauer going around the form. We've got the title track, uh, Seven Organic Ear Food. This is by Bauer. Uh, it's a fun syncopated marimba intro from Bauer before Sineski and Baumgartner join in. Bauer switches to vibes for the melody, letting it ring out over the unique swinging 8-beat feel that Baumgartner keeps on the cymbals. We get a vibe solo 
and a bluesy switch to marimba as Sineski keeps the chords pumping underneath. And Sineski gets a solo too, then keeping it smooth and groovy. Bauer brings the melody back and he mixes vibes and marimba together. Uh, hmm. You can hear them both there when he comes back. Uh, they vamp on the chords a bit for Baumgartner to mix up the drums underneath as it fades out. Track eight is a Sineski original, Better Late Than Never. Baumgartner makes an intro of some tom work into a little Latin beat. Then Sineski and Bauer enter and work the mysterious snaking melody lines together, uh, Baumgartner adding complementary drum figures. Sineski's good at writing <laughs> these kind of uh, hmm. slinky melodies, I think. Uh, Bauer solos on vibes first, then Sineski. They both keep the sense of open looseness of the tune and once more through the mysterious melody to take it out. Track 9's another Bauer original, Yakaranda. It sounds like Vibes and Marimba together on an interesting syncopated intro from Bauer. It shifts to Marimba as Sineski adds some Vibes and percussive organ hits with Baumgartner's cymbals. Sineski then adds a smooth organ melody line that contrasts nicely with the percussive mallet hits. Bauer has a relaxed and dreamy vibe solo, switching again to marimba. Uh, he makes some notes pop and works with repeated mallets nicely to get the notes to sustain. Then it's quickly back to vibes to work the melody in sync with Zineski's chords. Once more back to the opening marimba rhythmic chords and organ hits for Baumgartner to make some tight tom textures underneath to a soft rolling final mallet ending. Mm. We're going to end up with Silver Train, another Sineski original, and uh, actually we heard Pat Bianchi do this on his uh, recording, most recent recording we did a few episodes back right. on our organ episode. Uh, here, they do it with a drum intro from Baumgartner, and then it's off swinging on the minor bluesy melody. It's an AABA form with a nice contrast on the syncopated B section. Bauer solos first on vibes over Sineski's busy walking bass lines. Sineski has a more percussive tone in his solos here. He hints, I think, at, uh, sounds like softly as a morning sunrise. Uh, I don't know mm. if, it's kind of like that. I don't know if that's what he was thinking, but uh, I picked that vibe up uh, on the way in some of his intense lines. They trade eights with Baumgartner for some drum solos between the vibes and organ uh, before taking it around the melody a couple more times to a stretched out ending. So it turns out that organ vibes and marimba go together really nicely. Sineski keeps the organ tone clean, makes a nice uh, timbre match with the vibes. There's enough space on this recording to hear everything that's going on in each part. And Baumgartner is tasty with just enough drums, never overpowering the lightness of the marimba and or vibes. Uh, Bauer switches between vibes and marimba are interesting <laughs> at a moment's notice. And he always seems yeah, that, to go from... really caught my ear, yeah. Yeah, from vibes mm -hmm. to marimba. I guess he likes that kind of progression. Uh, the tune selections and variety are good and energetic solos all around. I thought it's an engaging recording that's going to fill your ear with, you know, interesting timbres that you don't usually hear together. Well, it certainly filled my ears with uh, enjoyable sounds. I really loved this record. I'm going to mm. have to get a copy of it. Yeah, I, just hearing the vibes in the organ was, on one record was fantastic enough. Um, and I was pretty excited to hear them together. This is a beautiful sounding and beautifully arranged album. It's very chilled out, too, we should say. It's kind of, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't, well, Silver Train gets a little lively at the end, but uh, I really enjoyed that about it, too. 
Uh, it would probably work to provide atmosphere if you're looking to set a mood. But for me, the sounds jump out. I just like the whole vibe. I just thought it was a great record. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm glad, at least since I've been looking at new releases, uh, there, there was a re-release of an uh, album that uh, Sineski made back in the 80s, too, that uh, was made available this year, too. So nice. I think he's an exciting uh, keyboardist in general on both piano and organ. So I'm glad we're getting to hear uh, more new music from him. All right. This was my um, favorite jazz record of the week. So huh. I had Reese and classical and this one in uh, jazz, yeah. and I was a happy guy. Okay, cool. During this relatively sad week, <laughs> this kind of cheered me <laughs> yeah. up. You know? All right, we're going to end up with, uh, well, this is sort of, uh, I don't know where to fit it in. We both yeah. like flamenco music, and uh, we did some flamenco guitar a few weeks ago. And uh, here we've got uh, one of the great uh, virtuosos of the bass uh, who can't well, really the double be... double bass, I guess you could say, right? The double bass, yeah. yeah. And here the five-string bass is his preferred weapon of uh, destruction here. And if you're a bass and player... weapon is the right word. Yeah, it's kinda... beware, because uh, this man <laughs> is maybe possessing the most awesome technique on the planet here. And he's got a voracious musical approach, too. And we're talking about Renaud Garcia-Fons. Yeah. And... You see a video of him on the uh, the Facebook page, right? Yeah. Did you put that up? I should put that up because yeah, okay. I, I have to warn listeners, if, if you're not familiar with Garcia Fons' playing, uh, when you listen to this, you will think there's like a whole bunch of string players on various instruments and... There isn't. <laughs> There's lots of instruments on this album, but everything, when you think you're hearing a cello or even a violin or a viola kind of tone, that's him. Uh, yeah. And sometimes he's doing all of those at once. Although there is mm. some overdubbing on this uh, recording uh, to achieve the desired effect, but I'll post the link because you really have to see his performance. There's a NPR Tiny Desk conference of just him solo yeah. Really, he's a whole string quartet in one man, and he can have yeah. all these parts going on um, here. And uh, this is on the Sesame label. Uh, it says uh, the editor, Frederick Leibovitz. Now, this is only on, on streaming, although his other releases on uh, Sesame are on CD, so I assume this will come out on CD. There is absolutely no <laughs> information about the musician's uh, recording compositions or anything online. I searched everywhere. I wrote to his agent and I didn't get a reply. So <laughs> I wrote in French <laughs> to the Sesame <laughs> label. I thought the translation seemed to be okay because when I went back and forth between English and French, I didn't get any strange things. But they must have thought there was something strange. So they wrote back to me in English. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I got a well, uh, yeah, maybe reply. Maybe they listened to the podcast and they knew we spoke English. It I could be. And we got hmm. a, a direct reply from the CEO himself, Mr. Uh, Leibovitz, uh, who uh, got the information forwarded to me. So thank you very much for that. It would have been really hard to uh, talk about this without that. Now, Garcia Fons, if you're not familiar with him, he began his studies at uh, an early age, uh, five years old on the piano. He switched to classical guitar. Uh, he played some rock music in his teens and upright bass he moved to at the age of 16, studied at the Conservatory of Paris. And uh, he got this unique kind of, uh, I guess they call it uh, col arco sound, viola-like uh, sound. He's sometimes mm. called the Paganini of the double bass. 
And uh, <laughs> then he also got into uh, jazz music. And uh, he's, you know, an explorer, I guess you could say, into sort of the uh, world music uh, field as well. He's got some interesting. Yeah, I think I'd classify this album as a world music album. Kind of world music, yeah. yeah. Uh, I th I heard his recording. Uh, I think this goes back to 1998. Oriental bass, uh, mm. and uh, he's got some other kind of um, Mediterranean themed, you know, world music uh, things where he can get into these kind of uh, modal type of improvisations and combine a lot of different elements. Uh, so you get improvisational nature this is not you know how shall we say uh jazz idiom uh kind mm -hmm. of improvisations but drawing on a lot of different cultures combined with his amazing technique and here it's all applied towards uh the kind of new flamenco uh genre maybe sort of you could call it experimental flamenco uh i did read that ethnically he does have ties to this flamenco culture uh, you know, he's uh, French, but uh, he's fluent in French, Spanish, and English. And uh, so here he's going to uh, give us this kind of journey into uh, flamenco music. Interestingly, when you do hear sort of contemporary kind of flamenco jazz, you usually hear it with electric bass. You know, you hear like cajon, yeah. electric bass. But here you're going to get this amazing acoustic sound and get your stereo ready for this because it, this recording uh is really dynamic and the bass right. is pressurized it will really sort of create a vacuum and suck your windows in and out uh, when you hear the bass here yeah it's really a rich recording too yeah you know, really very present highly produced but in a good way it's, yeah it's it made it sound a little bit more like a like a pop a popular music record yeah. let's say yeah it's uh, very hot and uh, yeah. immediate sounding. Now the 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 information I got about this recording it was in a spreadsheet in Excel, <laughs> which I had to expand a lot of fields on. And um, I I do thank them a lot for providing it, but they don't match up exactly <laughs> with the tracks. <laughs> so we're getting a general idea, and we'll have to take a few leaps of faith on the instrumentation. But basically. Uh, I'll list the musicians first and then refer to them as they go through. This is a long recording, 80 minutes, 20 tracks of music. So I'll try to get through them quickly. Well, this was a long week of listening yeah, to music too because I sure had was, two 80-minute yeah. one, and yeah. one almost 90-minute album. So it really right. did take a while. A lot so of time got, in the chair this week. <laughs> yeah, we've got uh, Renaud Garcia Fons. His main instrument, the five-string bass, which gives him this extended uh, register. It does say that here he also does the octobass, which is sort of like this uh, giant <laughs> three-stringed bass, uh, uh, this rather rare instrument. Uh, and he also does some percussion things, uh, overdubbing here too. We've got tambura udu. And I have, sometime I'll have to tell you my udu drum story uh -huh. uh, because I know I kn knew, I did communicate with him recently, the, the man who makes most of these drums for the music world now. Um, he was my high school art teacher. Or, that's funny. Yeah, Why don't you we'll tell the story now? That. Just you know, before anyway, you launch into this. It was at high school, junior high school. Frank mm. Giorgini was a school uh, art teacher uh, in New York. <laughs> Giorgini, and, Jeez, uh, Italian American yeah. lives in New York. So, anyway, he took, uh, <laughs> I think he took time off. He went to Africa and learned to make these Udu drums, not voodoo drums, but Udu. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, pitch drums. And wouldn't you know it, that happened to be the sort of beginning of the world music kind of 
you know, pop craze when you had Peter Gabriel and Paul Simon and everyone getting into like these kind of things. And yeah. he was Started like the, the mid, eight, mid to late eighties. Yeah. Right? He was the only mm-hmm. guy who uh, knew how to, you know, make these uh, drums, you know, outside of, Africa, and so you could see his name on uh, all of these kind of, um, you know, famous albums of musicians uh, because he makes the drums uh, for them, or at least he mm-hmm. did at that time. I'm not sure uh, what he's doing. I got in touch with him years later when I saw his his name there. Is this the same guy? And it turns out, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it was. Um, you know, just a, an interesting turn of career there. Uh, anyway, uh, so. Uh, Garcia Fons is doing uh, these other percussions. Cajon as well, uh, which you'll hear on some tracks here. We've got uh, Vincente Pradal, guitar uh, and hand claps, which I guess they call palmas in uh, flamenco. Ana Yerno also on hand claps. Negrito, Trasante Croco, drums and percussion. Kiko Ruiz on guitar. Uh, Raba Calfa, percussion. Bendir and lute. Jean-Francois Roger, tabla, marimba, percussion. I don't think I could tell you where the marimba was on this recording uh, myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruno Kayat, uh, goblet drum called Zarb, uh, tambourine, uh, Rick. Uh, Claire Antonini, lute or baroque lute. Uh, Theorbo, tar, lute, zither, bazooki. Uh, David Ventucci, accordion. David Peña Dorantes, piano. Uh, Adel Shams, tambourine, goblet drum, Henri Tournier, Bansuri, and alto flute. And Bansuri is like that sideways wooden flute, right. I guess. And Esperanza Fernandez, vocals, and also vocals, Solea Garcia Fons. I don't know if that's his wife or uh, there's two female vocalists on here. Okay. Anyway, a cast of musicians. Uh, let's jump into this, try to go through these quickly. Uh, most of the tunes here are Garcia Fons' originals. There's a couple that are also credited to uh, the piano player, uh, David Durantes, as uh, co-composer. Uh, uh, track one, Jean Boleria. Uh, percussion, hand claps, and Vincente Pradal on flamenco guitar. Then Garcia Fons enters on his high register five-string bass with soaring modal melodies. There's some overdubbing of the bass parts, I'm sure, here. Um, because you can hear a section with uh, two distinct lines of bowing. Uh, this is at a blazing tempo in a six-beat meter. It brightens into a more major modality towards the end. Track two, Berimbas. Uh, this one starts out with Garcia Fons on a bouncy and sometimes sliding bass line with light shaking percussion, I believe from Trasante Croco. Kiko Ruiz plays the melody on guitar and then trades to Garcia Fons before taking it back. It's in a five-beat meter on this tune. Garcia Fons then has a low-plucked solo that evokes the blues and incredible mm-hmm. rhythmic figures. This one, this is the one that hooked me on this album when I heard this. Uh, the bass mm-hmm. is pressurized in the recording. It's sure to shake your room. Uh, Ruiz riffs on the groove that Garcia Fons created, and then uh, Garcia Fons comes back with a bowed solo in the cello range of uh, what you'd be hearing on uh, most string instruments. Shows off his amazing technique and speed. Uh, the harmonies in this song are interesting. Uh, he continues on to the end, bowing the original melody. Track three, Caballera del Amor. Uh, they get a minor six-beat groove going with Garcia Fons's plucked bass, percussion from Pascal Rolando, and accordion work from 
David Ventucci. Uh, this one is a vocal number featuring Esperanza Fernandez. She sings the melody, which gets doubled by accordion nicely, but she adds some really interesting microtone pitch play uh, in between the notes there. Uh, there's a contrasting, more lilting bridge section that breaks up the heavy minor groove and ends in a pause and reset for another verse. Uh, Ventucci adds some playful dancing fills on accordion. Track four, Bajo Andaluz. Uh, rapid light percussive bass figures transform into heavier bass and then modal plucked solo improvisations from Garcia Fons. There's hand claps from, I believe it would be Ana Yerno and Vicente Pradal. Garcia Fons is playing like lightning, but keeping it rhythmic and even slips in some harmonics in there. Uh, bendy notes, speedy lines. Uh, this will blow the minds of all bass players. <laughs> Listen to this. Uh, <laughs> it's an all bass and claps on this tune, despite the credits I got listing guitar, lute, and marimba on this track. Uh, just bass and uh, claps mm. here. Uh, track five, uh, Luces de Lorca. This starts with some rubato guitar from Reese. Garcia Fons adds a pulsing bass line underneath with percussion. Uh, sounds like goblet drum from Adel Shams. The melody line is on flute or bansuri from Henri Tournier with a nice hesitated phrasing. Also, there's some lute or zither. Uh, it's it's not big in the mix, but there's some other uh, string instrument there. I was contrasting light middle section as it moves in a slow six beat meter before returning to the goblet drum and deep bass line. Uh, intriguing arrangement and instrumentation on this one, Again, different from the other tracks. Track six, Las Ramblas. A very funky percussion groove starts this one. Uh, I guess it would be a combination of percussion by Kayat Shams and Garcia, uh, who's listed here as playing this Udu, Bendir, Cajon, uh, and other percussion instruments. Bass and uh, Ventucci's uh, accordion get this rhythmic groove in a steady four-beat pattern going. There's a great unison descending figures in the me melody line on accordion and bass as Ruiz lads rhythmic guitar strums. The pulsing beat will really make you want to get up and dance on this one, but you won't be mm. up for long because it's just over two minutes long. And then it moves <laughs> on. Uh, track seven, Como Sueño Infantil. And this one is credited to Fons and Durantes. A nice contrast with bass and piano by Durantes. Uh, they work a Spanish two-chord riff into a cello-like bowed solo from Garcia Fons here. He switches to a plucking with rapid and ringing notes. Uh, what a tone he has. Amazing. Uh, Peña Durantes takes it on the piano with a solo of relaxed and floating lines, snaking and ringing tones. He works into some fluttering higher register figures that sustain over the bass ostinato patterns below. Then it transforms with some rich chord progressions to another section of bowed bass solo that really cries out high, then digs in with rhythmic strumming as it races to the end. Track 8, Sole a Sol. Uh, this sounds like alternating measures of seven and five beats. You tell me, you're going to hear that rhythmic pattern again. It must be a flam uh, familiar flamenco type flamenco of thing. Kind of yeah. Pattern, yeah. Uh, there are alternating melody strains of doubled wind line and then guitar from Ruiz. I can't tell by the credits. Is it flute and bansuri by Runier? It almost sounds like mixed with the flute is a single accordion tone to me, but... I'm not sure. I, uh, I said there was an accordion on this. So I think maybe. it's accordion yeah. and flute yeah. um, or bansuri. Uh, the tempo yeah. is slow over hand claps and a deep percussive thud. It's a pretty melody, 
And Ruiz does some stately guitar work here. Track nine, El Rio Os Espera. This one also given credit for Dorantes. Uh, rapid machine gun-like percussive bass with added lower tones. Move along over modal improvisations, working into a steady groove that's joined by uh, Peña Dorantes on piano. Uh, Garcia Fons goes into a bowed solo that reaches high to eerie cries before he switches back to percussive and rapid plucking to end it over the piano's lush chords. Track 10 is uh, El Lido Os Espera 2, or Dos. Dos. Uh, Garcia Fons <laughs> starts a plucked rhythmic 8-bar, eight 8-beat eight groove that gets joined by ringing piano chords and melodic lines from Durantes. Uh, then he bows the melody, it has some unexpected harmonic twists back and forth to major sounds. It really sings. Uh, then he switches to plucking out a groove for Durantes to solo over. Smooth lines and rhythmic uh, and dynamic variation in the piano. Fun bass slaps for extra rhythm underneath it. Uh, Durantes works it into some choppy and heavier chords for a while while getting to more jazzy legato lines. Now Garcia Fons is next with an improvised bowing solo. Uh, working it to the melody again with dramatic pauses on the way and more crying harmonics and little harmonic uh, exploration uh, this time in his solo. Uh, he finishes it off with some rapid plucked ideas over the fading piano tones. This is the longest track on the recording at 7 minutes and 48 seconds, so there's a little bit more development. Track 11, uh, Fort Fortaleza. Uh, here, Garcia Fons starts it with steady and heavy 6-beat a one-note bass pattern. He had some extra subdivided play with the addition of percussion uh, from Kayat and Shams. Sounds like Cajon from Garcia Fons as well in the mix. A bowed melody and sort of the cello register is added with more short harmonic strums underneath. Uh, that must be overdubbed. Uh, the syncopated feel and harmonies are intriguing. There's a break with percussion, then some almost violin register, high bowing lines. Mm -hmm. uh, he takes a blazing cello register bowed improvised solo, pushing it back again to the higher register in spots, and then drives it with more rhythmic phrases to the end. Truck 12, Anda Loco. This is rubato and ringing, and then rapid bass improvisations. There's some ringing like Indian sound in the background. Uh, what's that instrument? Uh, we were talking about it last the week. The yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's a in the back there. Um, yeah. they, I think the it's, one that they played uh, set the harmonic limits of, yeah, the, uh, yeah. of the rag. Yeah. I think it's uh, Negrito Trasante Crocro uh, joining on percussion. Uh, a groove forms. And Ruiz enters with uh, subtle guitar figures as Garcia Fons pushes ahead with intense rhythmic plucked lines and ringing simultaneous intervals. He really hits some grooves, gets joined by Ruiz on a unison melody line in octaves. Ruiz then gets a repetitive riff cycling for Garcia Fons to take a crying bowed solo over. Ruiz mixes up the rhythmic accompaniment as it builds into a heavy rock-like groove with some build-up of the percussion to a big finish. Track 13, uh, Cuarenta Dias, a rubato solo guitar from Ruiz. Uh, Garcia Fons had some plucked tones underneath before switching to a sweet bowed melody and a crying solo. Uh, there are some pretty unexpected chords in this one. Interestingly, it seems to be here also alternating seven and five beat measures. Very lovely phrasing, subtle expressions on this one ending in a crying high note. Track four, 
14, palabras mm. de ensueño uh, uno. Durante starts it on piano with rolling chordal figures under chiming melody notes. It relaxes for some more rubato, simpler phrases. Garcia Fons enters with bowed melodic lines. It stays rubato, and his phrasing gives the impression of a flamenco vocalist. Uh, Durantes rolls the chords underneath as it builds to a climax and ends. And 15, Palabras de Ensueño eh, Dos. A fast and frantic seven-beat rhythmic piano, piano figures with tight bass underneath. It turns rubato with a ringing, ascending piano line and slow-flowing piano figures from Durantes. Garcia Fons joins back in with rubato lines of his own, having a dialogue with Durantes in this one. Uh, a bass hit brings back the busy opening section, this time heading to a new rhythmic feel made by bass harmonics from on the bass and high ringing piano figures from Durantes together making a dreamy mood to the end. Track 16, Camino de Felicidad. This is a vocal number featuring Solea Garcia Fons. Mm. Uh, it's got percussion and luter zither added into the mix. There's, it's a little more poppy sounding uh, for the vocal. Uh, Garcia Fons had some high bowing behind the vocals in addition to the lower bass line. And he takes a bowed solo as well between the verses uh, and works into some fast and crying figures. Track 17, Caballera uh, de Mi Amor Dos. Uh, Kiko Ruiz on guitar here has some time over light shaking percussion and added bass. Gets more rhythmic motion. Garcia Fons comes in swirling with a bowed sound and works some speedy, bowed, shredded, and rhythmic ideas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. yeah, really bowing fast here. Turning lighter over the light and fresh rhythmic work of Ruiz, uh, Venetucci steps up next with a fleet single-lined accordion solo. Uh, Pascal Roriando works up the percussion. Guitar and bass join together for a melody line into a percussion break of some uh, cajon and shaker. Goes into a little reprise of the melody. Uh, this being Caballero uh, de Mi Amor. Dos, uh, the original was track three, so you're going to hear that initial melody at the end uh, here. Track 18, Entre Continentes. Uh, rapid improvised plucked bass figures with ringing notes and harmonies start this one out. Garcia Fons establishes a groove joined very lightly by some percussion and then guitar scratching, and they all build it up. Uh, Negrito Trasante Croco on percussion, Ruiz taking over with some bouncy guitar. Uh, then the bass trades bowing solos with Ruiz's guitar until they work on a driving syncopated line to the end. Uh, track 19, Guitanet. Solo bass plucking improvisations are joined by Ruiz's gentle figures on guitar. A groove is formed with the bass tight plucked melody and percussion. Guitar and bass dance together, uh, give uh, percussion some time to show off the drum beats. Uh, Garcia Fons takes a bowed solo. They go back to the guitar bass dance under the percussion and another bowed melody. It mellows for some guitar from Ruiz over rhythmic patterns from the bass and a final bowed improvisation that soon fades out. And the last track, uh, Bajo de Guia. It's all solo bass here. Uh, improvisations from 
Garcia Fons becoming melodic and including some harmonics. He carries higher plucked melody ideas, adding bass notes to accompany himself. After about two and a half minutes, a new faster and rhythmic theme is formed. Uh, he works through with rhythmic melodic movements, harmonic accompaniment, uh, getting a guitar-like scratching flamenco rhythm going at times. The final section, he works low and more percussive until a final rising line of dazzling speed. Uh, there seems to be a track 21 referred to as an alternate take of something in the notes, but it's not on streaming. Uh, maybe it'll be on the eventual CD release, although it's hard to remember. It's not on the streaming we heard. Anyway. Hard to imagine yeah. cramming any more time into this 80-minute yeah. uh, release. Um, so what you got here is probably the most virtuosic bass player in the world uh, doing uh, flamenco music. It's uh, adventurous improvisations. I do like the varied instrumentations. Um, as we were talking about, there's not really an arc to the development on this recording. It's a lot of different uh, ideas uh, that show off, you know, his uh, ideas of these, um, you know, flamenco-influenced uh, modal improvisations and uh, amazing technique in uh, plucking bass, uh, various, be able to do harmonic things at once, and this amazing uh, bode's uh, technique that he has in all registers of, <laughs> of the string family. Hmm. Um, so maybe, I don't know, flamenco purists might not know what to make of this. Uh, if you just generally like world music or something a bit more experimental on a flamenco theme, and maybe the most amazing bass you ever hear, you're sure not to be disappointed. Uh, the sound quality is also, you know, well-produced and very hot. Uh, so you're going to hear all of the... Uh, instruments in part uh, really energized uh, in this recording yeah um i i i don't really know what to make of this album mm. actually i will say first of all yeah the, the virtuosity is absolutely fantastic it's amazing yeah it, as we'd expect from players approaching flamenco but this goes even beyond that it's pretty although yeah. the guitar playing is pretty dynamic but the the bass is amazing um, and it's very well recorded, uh, but not to the point where it loses its personality. So it just sounds like really plush and coming yeah. up and out of your speakers. And yet it's got a lot of like impact as well. Uh, the flamenco and rhythmic elements come up very, very well. And yet, I don't know, I guess kind of felt like, um, yeah, the, the album wasn't really cohesive to me. I'll explain why I think this is the case. Um, first of all, I think this is a good this is a good kind of bookend to the first album we heard on this podcast, the Monza, because that mm. was like a, a gallant style, and I said it was all on the surface. I think this recording too, it's all about you know what hits the ears. You know, the, you're listening to the virtuosity and the really compelling sounds coming out of your speaker, but you're not getting philosophy. Let's say, like I said in that one, you're not really mm. getting any much intellect out of this. You're really being wowed. Um, by the playing, and that's great. Um, the first track is really just blows you away, but you know, and then there's 80 minutes of music more to come, but it doesn't go above that level, you know, for the album. So I feel like you, you heard really a lot of what he could do, or mm. the level of um musicianship that you're going to hear throughout on the first album and the the ante doesn't get upped as the album goes on so i kind of feel like um this 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 works well as a set of individual tracks if it's on the mm -hmm. um 
if it's like if you're listening to this on streaming, you might want to just sample one or two tracks or just listen to one or two tracks, which I think um, is what he thinks people are going to do. Young people tend to just listen to single tracks, and it'll work really well. You could just be wowed by that. As I listen to this uh, going through it, I kind of wish I could have seen it more because the the virtuosity is so amazing. Yeah. I wanted to actually see him doing it. Yeah. This would have been great as a video, really. Right. Really. Yeah. Okay. So I felt um I don't know I I, I was like amazed by this but I, the album didn't really leave me with this really satisfied feeling by the end it, it took a long time to get through it too I had to do this in a few listens mm. um so anyway that's I th- yeah I'm interested in him I I yeah. certainly want to see more of what he's going to do but I I don't know I just kind of I liked the music, but the as the album as a whole didn't really light my fire so much. Really, it might just, just be the too long. Mm. You know? Maybe, yeah, it could just be too much of a good thing. Yeah. Um, and maybe that rich sound throughout. Maybe it's just too much. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, but I did. Yeah. I did enjoy that. I liked hearing. It's like that. an all-you-can base really... buffet. <laughs> and, yeah, and your all-you-can base buffet, and then you're you're just hoarding all the food like you're a Hawaiian, yeah. you know. <laughs> Just pile up the dish like three feet high yeah. and shut down. And by the end, you just have this big stomach, even though, even though it was all delicious, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, you got to check this out, especially if you're a bass. Yeah, player. I think you should check um, it out. Absolutely, it's, it's a unique recording. And like I said, I wouldn't wasn't sure where else we could kind of fit this in, unless we did, you know, a flamenco kind of. Yeah, I'm glad I know who he is thing. now. I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't aware of him before this. But um, yeah, yeah, definitely an amazing bass player and. Uh, Got some. The other musicians on here are really good, especially uh, Ruiz's uh, guitar yeah. playing, and mm-hmm. uh, like that. I actually think you, you could have easily broken this up into two different recordings, um, yeah. and then you know put one vocal on each one, and uh, maybe split up the piano pieces. I did like the variety of instrumentation, you know, with the piano mm-hmm. on some. Just piano and maybe, bass. Maybe on get some. some more varying tempos, you know, from yeah. track to track or something like that. You know. Right. But um, yeah, definitely an amazing virtuoso of the bass. It's hard to imagine anyone being able to do more uh, with the bass. It's not only the technique. I mean, it, he he does elicit some amazing feelings. I can when he does, you know, his bowing solos. The tones that he can get actually gets the yeah. hair up on the back of your neck, like the yeah. you know. The and as a result, it made me want to see a video because I wanted to see how he was yeah. doing it. You know you what, what he it. was doing to achieve some of these sounds. You right. know? So yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I was. Uh, it's a it's a recording that will really amaze you uh, with uh, mm. the technique and sort of sonics. Uh, so thanks again to uh, Frederick Leibovitz for sending me those uh, credits. And uh, I don't know, I guess it'll probably come out on uh, CD uh, eventually, like his other releases. And we'll see what else uh, Garcia Fons does in his world music excursions. Check out that Oriental bass recording too. Uh, if I you like check this that one. out and see, yeah, pretty cool. I was, I, we generally like uh, we were, you know, what we were listening to a couple of weeks ago, Constantinople, and oh, that, uh, I like that one a lot. Yeah, yeah that was really good. Yeah, we like mm. these kind of, you know, world We've music. Done a lot of flamenco this year. This is, I think, our third one already. Yeah, our third kind of flamenco. Yeah. So even I'm, I'm still learning. Was more world oriented, and then we did the, uh, the. Uh, Ignacio, yeah, I forget his name, Lussard de Monteverde. Monteverde, and, and his was first a kind of more classical flamenco yeah. oriented. Yeah, his recording yeah. last year that was more of a world music sort of right. along the Silk Road 
yeah. elements of flamenco. And this year is sort of more of a historical, oh. yeah. Uh, it, it, but it's still elements, kind of still world, world kind of music. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I'm learning. I, yeah, I've always that. liked flamenco, and now I'm getting to like sort of really focus on try to learn. I actually, learned a little bit about it, the different so. rhythms this year now. So now I feel yeah. I, I still don't feel like I understand it, but I mean, you know, I kind of can hone yeah. in, zero Good. in on certain elements of it now. Good learning experience. Yeah. So there you have it from the chamber and uh, yeah. a mix of uh, odds and ends in jazz that all adds up to a really good listening. Uh, a couple of really standout uh, recordings I'm sure we're going to come back to. I'm going to recommend the uh, in classical music, the Ferdinand Rees recording we talked about, and in jazz, the Organic Ear Food album, which I yeah. loved. Really good and stuff. Those are my two standouts. Yeah, and that'll uh, about wrap it up for episode 80 of Adult Music. Uh, remember to like or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. Remember, you can get the playlist for the next week's episode. If you check us out on our Facebook page during the week after this episode goes up and gets shared to Facebook, I put the playlist for next week uh, that's only on Deezer, but there's a link to it on the Facebook. Now, I should say, next week, we're going to be... Uh, Kind of in guitar land. Yeah. Guitar-centered recordings. you got to think of a title. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we'll another, get to that. Another guitar title. What are we going to say? But I am going to tell you that uh, there's one recording that's going to be a, a debut. We got an advanced uh, release copy. Yeah. Uh, How about for, that? We're moving for, up in the world. For recording. And we're going to talk about yeah. it before anyone else can hear it. Uh, so if you want to... In jazz, that is. Know yeah. about that. In jazz. Uh, you can yeah. check that out. I'll put that up. I'll, I'll allude to it. Uh, in the uh, listening list, but uh, I won't be able to actually put it up there until a little bit afterwards. So right. uh, we got that to look forward to for next week. Uh, got some, yeah, we've got our picks already made uh, this time. So right. we haven't done a guitar episode in a while. So that should be kind of. Uh, I think we did, we did one this year, though. We did one, yeah. But yeah. Uh, it's been a, it's it was been earlier a, in the year. A little bit of a, since we did that. Seems like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> as does everything 30 years ago seems like yesterday to me yeah. Yeah. so there you have it and uh, thanks again to Fast Signs Staten Island for our glowing neon logo uh, and um, I don't know anything else you want to say before we uh, close out Mike I just want to say when you're 57 years old 30 years ago feels like 3 years ago <laughs> so I think you just take the zero away and you have Times, like the, the feeling yeah. world of it you know oh yeah Let's see. So I was in high school. I went to college. I started college in 1983, and now it's what 2022. Next year will be 2023. Yeah. So what was that like 40 years ago? So it feels like four years ago. Wow. <laughs> that's that's the way I think of it. Because I kind of remember it, you know. Still, I don't know. I feel like uh, I feel like everybody I knew then uh, should still have hair. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> On their head. Yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, time is a funny thing. At least we can measure it, it with thing. good music as we go along. So, yeah, killing, you know, using the time. Um, I shouldn't say killing the time, but using the time uh, <laughs> gently, letting the time pass gently with music. Really, really wonderful. Yeah. It's mm. the best way to go with tunes. Mm. All right. So, thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, I can check out all the links uh, to this music on Apple, Spotify, Deezer. Next week's playlist coming up on Deezer for all of our guitar-themed 
recordings for next week, including a debut that you get to find out about before you can listen to it on streaming. And so come on over to Facebook tomorrow to check that out. And until next week, episode 81, have a good week. Keep listening and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.